you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends, and welcome. Glad you could join me on this, the first episode of 2021. My promise to you, the podcast is going to get even better in 2021 than it was in 2020. I have a slate of guests that is fire like Hayana, chocolate and bow-legged. <laughs> That's old mystical back in the day. My guest today says he's just a guy trying to get through life without pretending to be something he isn't. 20 years ago, I'd say that comment sounds like a load of BS. But is it today in modern society as filtered as it is to shed the facade or to remove the proverbial mask, not the COVID mask? I'd say it's quite an accomplishment. That's because in a society so often devoid of candor and even truth, I find that we're craving a certain authenticity. And so it's refreshing when we encounter it in our everyday lives. Jared Parfait is my guest. He's a husband and father a runner and all-around sports fan. He says that he embraces the cheat day. And I say good for him because I know this MF, an acronym I use affectionately, I know he sacrificed a lot of delicious Cajun cooking to look as good as he does. As P.D. Mangan says, diet is much more important than exercise if, if you're going to look 43 when you're 65, as P.D. does. But my man Parfait dropped 80 pounds in five years, which I think is the way to do it. Basically, you're you're losing six, 16 pounds a year, which is one and a third pounds per month. You do it that way, and I think it becomes part of who you are. It's a lifestyle choice. One of my students has a, a plan to gain 15 pounds by July. He's feeling a little waka flocka. <laughs> so what you want to do is break it down, 15 pounds in six months. It's two and a half pounds per month. That's it. If Oprah did it that way, she'd be in a better spot, right? <laughs> Rather than looking like 80 Brian in the fall when SNL comes out and then showing up in spring sporting a bikini looking like Juliana Rancic, then looking like Santa Claus again at Christmas time, I, <laughs> I think it's better to break it down into smaller components and it's, it's easily digestible that way, no pun intended. And if you didn't catch those references, remember 80 Brian is the big woman on SNL. She's hilarious. And then Juliana Rancic is, of course, the wife of the first winner of Apprentice. So he was not fired, and his first responsibility was to oversee the construction of Trump Tower in Chicago. You know that big, beautiful silver building that overlooks the Chicago River about a block from the Magnificent Mile? That was his first gig. Pretty cool. Oh, and Santa Claus. We're talking Chris Kringle there. I know you know good old St. Nick. But back to my guest. I wanted to have Parfait on because he's a risk taker. We spend most of the first hour talking about gambling and no limit hold'em. That's poker to you hodlers out there. He's also very opinionated. So he and I have quite a few disagreements in this episode. But most of all, he's somebody that I respect for his parenting. He has a way of raising his kid that I admire and respect. And I'm going to be picking his brain for quite a few years to come I'm quite confident you'll come away from this episode with at least one idea of how you could be a better parent. I know I did. 
So without saying without further ado, please enjoy my chat with Mr. Jared Parfait. Parfait, glad to have you here, man. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Bradley D. This is uh, interesting. It should be fun, to say the least. I think so. You and I are going to play poker after this. What compelled you to want to play poker tonight of all nights? Well, oh, tonight of yeah. all nights? Well, actually, you asked me to come on here. So it was an excuse to come towards the city and, uh, and then head over to Harris and they opened up six-handed tables over there now through this whole COVID thing, which has made poker really, really odd, to say the least. Uh, was in Biloxi a few weeks back earlier during the fall, and uh, they had bank teller windows set up and everything, and it was really, really awkward with masks and dividers, and it was so impersonal and just really wasn't all that much fun. Harris doesn't have the dividers set up on their tables. and then um, So, yeah, so you asked me to come this way. I figure why not? Harris has been having some games going, so go check it out. Go visit Grandma Harris and see if we can <laughs> find some money there. Grandma Harris. We've been calling the casino Grandma Harris since college. It's the devil. I mean, you go there to, to give Grandma your money, basically. No, we don't. We go there to, to get money from the people that <laughs> come to Speak for yourself. Harris. So, yeah, I, I try not to. I don't think I could be playing poker for this many years if, uh, if the whole thing was giving money away to everybody. So Grandma gets my rake at the poker table. But other than that, I mean, that's probably the, the biggest accomplishment in my poker playing days. I guess I started playing in like 2004 when everybody, 2003, 2004, the moneymaker boom. And then um, my greatest poker accomplishment is, is never going broke. I mean, it's, it's a hobby, you know, and then that's all it is. I don't, I don't hunt. I don't fish or anything like that, which is almost sacrilege down in South Louisiana. But, uh, but with poker, it's always allowed me just to kind of to have the opportunity to come back where, uh, with more money than I went there with, opposed to a, a successful deer hunting trip is uh, just going to cost you a lot more money in the end. Oh, that's an interesting way to view it. Okay, so I should correct myself. When we would come in college, we wouldn't play poker. I don't think they had poker back then. They did, but it was limit poker, and it was like upstairs. It was it was the stepchildren of all stepchildren back in the day with poker. It was strictly limit. It was ESPN made No Limit Hold'em. Like, that's basically what it was in 2003. Then Harris was strictly like 1020 limit or 3-6 limit. And like I said, they had this upstairs room. I don't even know where the upstairs room is. I never even saw it. The poker room's always been where I know it as right now but yeah harris was uh was strictly like a limit game until espn made it popular like espn tells us so much to do and go figure their own by the mouse <laughs> and disney world and everything else so they tell us what we're supposed to like i asked the question because i thought that you were going to say it was because it was a tourist weekend because well thanksgiving weekend you're going to have a lot of tourists i would think yeah i guess under normal circumstances you would but the the least thing we've had is anything normal so far but Harris, but Harris New Orleans is always a tourist thing for the most part. I mean, it, that was always the, the appeal during football season. And, you know, you'd have visiting teams. It was always the destination spot. That was one thing, like being a Saints season ticket holder. Even now, you realize so many opposing fans come because New Orleans is a destination city. I mean, it's a tourist city. So you always had a large crowd from the opposing team. So that was always interesting. I mean, I remember one time sitting at the poker table. I could tell you exactly where it was at. It was right there by the little Joker bar. And it was one table off of there, and this guy from Philly looked like he was Tony Soprano's cousin. And I made a really bad call because I thought he was full of it. And then I ended up catching my card, and then he looks at me with this effing guy over here. He's just going to call me with 4-6 and hit a gut shot like no big deal. And I was just kind of, yeah, I'm sorry, sir, and just kind of cowered a little bit. And then I kind of boasted my chest and just kind of started talking back to him. But, yeah, that was like my one moment sitting there with one of those Philly fans and notorious. I thought he was going to throw a battery at me or something like that. But, yeah, so what did y'all play whenever y'all come to Harris? You just go play the table games? Or? We would lose playing blackjack. Yeah, it was it was a regular thing. If we had a bad practice, we would take off probably around six after we would 
have weights and go eat in the calf and get home at like 1, 8, 1 or 2 a.m. and just not have enough money to be doing that sort of thing. We, we had no business going to the casino when you're 20. We probably used a fake ID if I had to guess. I don't even remember, but yeah, you got to be 21. So either we had just turned 21 or we were 20 using a fake ID. Yeah, I won't play table games anymore. I, I just prefer poker because your money can last so much longer. Yeah, I have not played a table game in years. I, I couldn't even tell you when was the last time I played a table game. There's there's still a joke between my best friend and I where we were in Vegas. Larry was the blackjack dealer's name, and we had played poker at the MGM Grand, and uh, I'd won a couple bucks, and, you know, first first session, put some money in the pocket, and then the the shoulder, you know, the little devil on my shoulder by by a certain name that we know this guy really well. I'm not going to put him on blast just just yet. But uh, he's like, come on, man, come sit at the table with me. So we go, and Larry proceeds to take all of our winnings from the poker table, and then after that, and then I swore off of it, and I'm like, I'm not letting Larry bust my ass again. So anytime we ever go play poker again, uh, that's that's our running joke, just like we call Grandma Harris. is uh, He'll say, I got Larry's ass this time, or, or, <laughs> or Larry got me, Larry's on fire tonight. And so uh, so that's the whole thing. But no, table games appeal to me zero. It's, uh, it's not a game of strategy. Everybody at a blackjack table looks miserable, even though they say they're having fun. <laughs> and I would rather just uh, kind of sit there and hopefully outthink my opponent or actually know why I lost a hand by making a mistake or the other person got lucky or whatever it may be. So poker is just kind of that extension of a, a competitive nature. You know, just uh, there's so many former athletes, you know, like yourself, like college level that we meet at the poker table. And I think a lot of it just has to do with just keeping that competitive factor and, and moving along and playing poker. Because uh, it allows you, it's, it's one of those games where you could actually sharpen your skills. Just like if you played basketball in college or, or baseball, you know, or anything like that, you can continue to compete and, uh, and never really grow old on it. And, and when you do get sloppy, you know exactly why. I mean, dropping your shoulder on, a, you know, <laughs> on an inside fastball or something like that is no different than uh, I should have raised on the turn whenever I picked up the redraw. You know, it's, 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 all, it's all the same when it comes to, uh, to competing. So true. My comment earlier about playing when tourists are there stems from remember thinking that if I live near here, I would come more on Mardi Gras or during that week because you'll get a guy that stumbles in at midnight and pulls out his wallet. He's got a wad of $100 bills. And he first thing he does is order a stiff drink because drinks are free and they're not used to that. If you come from a state that doesn't have casinos, that's a big deal. And so he starts calling everything or he gets a 2-7 and they're suited and he stays in and he calls everything until the river comes, orders another drink. And I, I just kept thinking, oh, man, if I could just live 10 minutes from here, I'd come on those nights and try to just find the sucker tourist that is not going to leave down $400 because that's not worth his time. Like he's either going to win a thousand bucks or lose Four thousand bucks. <laughs> All right. So, so Riley D, let me tell you why why you're wrong on this theory of yours. Okay. So, Mardi Gras. People come here for Mardi Gras, which means that they're coming here for a purpose. Those tourists are not the best for the game. The tourists with the least amount to do are the ones that are best for the game. So, what we used to do is we'd pull up the convention log to see what conventions were in town, what people would have the most disposable income, whether it be a, you know, a, um pharmaceutical sales, the type thing or, or whatever. Insurance guys tend to have a big ego for some reason. And then uh, so we would, we would see what conventions were in town. And those conventions would show up on like Tuesday and they would be here from like Tuesday to Friday, right? So Tuesday, 
in New Orleans, when you're here for a convention and you spent nine hours listening to some speaker talk because you had to show up for the first day, those are the guys that are good for the game. <laughs> those are the tourists that come to New Orleans for work that don't really want to be here because there's nothing really going on in the city. They're here for a convention. So Jazz Fest weekend, Mardi Gras, things like that, the big, the big touristy events, the games actually aren't as better. You're, you're better off with the people who are coming in for conventions. And then on the weekends, those destination weddings – where, you know, where guys don't, you know, you're forced to come in because it's your, you know, your second cousin and you have to come to the wedding and it's none of your friends. And those guys come to the poker room and, and they're willing to play. So so the Mardi Gras thing, in theory, it sounds right, but those actually aren't the best times for games. Selecting the right table, I would think, is of utmost importance. Do you take a look at the players when you're about to sit down and maybe tell the guy who's seating you, no, nah, man, I'm, I'm going to wait and or I'm going to. I'll sit here for a few minutes, but then I want to change tables because I would imagine you're looking at guys like with wedding rings on and you know that they're probably more conservative or you see the guy with the sunglasses on the, the 22 year old Asian Asian with the Gucci belt. Yeah. Uh, you have to, I mean, game selection, it's almost like anything, you know, in life kind of thing, you know, it, it you, you want to pick the spot that seems like it's the best for you. So Looking at the table, yeah, you're never going to pass up the open seat. They call your name when you go sit down, and then you just kind of bounce around the room and look to see what game is the best. But as far as like sizing up the opponent and, and things like that, it's it's not really it's not necessarily the wedding ring. It, it's something that you can only you can only pick up on from playing for so many years, right? The you have to pick up what guy is most uncomfortable, like the guy sitting down at the table with X amount. It doesn't matter how much. It doesn't matter if you sit down and you bought in for. $300 or you bought in for $3,000. It doesn't matter. Table stakes don't really matter. The stack sizes, all that thing, whatever. But it's what guy, that money in front of him means the most to him. That, like, that's, that's key whenever you're playing a hand in poker. And that's what makes a tournament different than a cash game. You know, because in a tournament, you know, whether it's a $500 buy-in tournament, everybody put up $500, everybody got 15000 in chips. Whenever you're done, you're done. And that's why people who are playing poker on a stricter budget tend to like tournaments a little bit better. But in a cash game, no. I mean, the, the guy who sits down, and you could just tell. You could just tell if it's a lot of money to the guy, you know, sitting in front of him. Just little things, uh, the way he carries himself at the table, the way he thinks about small decisions early on in the hand, whether it be pre-flop or if he gets three-bet or something like that. I mean, not to get too into, like, the poker talk. That's just basic poker stuff. But, no, just picking up on those things right there are a lot more, a lot more beneficial along the line. Also, too, making table conversation of how long, oh, how long you been, oh, you just sat down, oh, no, I've been here all night. Okay, so you've been here all night, and you can kind of gauge whether or not that guy's getting beat up all night, or if he's up big. So if he's been here for a long time and he's up big, he's probably going to fold because he don't want to, you know, just piss away his profit. And if he's been there, and if he just got there, then he may be a little bit looser, maybe a little more willing to chase something. So all those things right there kind of factor in, and, you know, it's not something that you can just learn the first time you sit down it's just like i said from years of playing you know i mean i'm wait what 17 years of playing poker which just sounds so weird you know that i've played poker for for that long but you know it's, it's a hobby it's a game i enjoy it you know it's it's a it's a test and and i play a lot less than what i used to play because now i have an almost five-year-old but uh but nonetheless it's a hobby and i enjoy it that's so interesting to me having a casino so close to your house you've got to be tempted in any spare moment to go and and hit up a game i would think not really uh it, because man like the the being a dad thing which you're going to experience very shortly it you feel uh, me personally 
I'm one of these people where if I can't, uh, if I can't tell him good night, if I can't play with him a little bit longer, things like that, then I feel guilty and like I don't want to go have fun. Like, and and even though like I'm gonna have so many nights of telling him good night and all this other stuff, and it doesn't really matter, and he's not mad at me for it. Me personally, like I have that guilt. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have fun, and you're about to just you know hang out with mom, and she's gonna try to make sure that you get to bed at a normal time or whatever while dad goes hang out and, and play cards. So it's not that important. I mean, when it was when I was younger, you know, and and we didn't have kids, Carolyn was never a person to say, you can't do this. Our relationship was never like that. So it was never a big deal. So me going to play cards was just always something where oh, I think I'm going to go play tonight and I go play. Or there were times when I got in the car, drove like 40 minutes and then was like, you know what? I just I really don't feel like going to play tonight. Whoa! Turn around and went back. You know, some people was, do that at the gym. Like they'll put on their tennis shoes and get to the gym and just not walk in the door. But if they just walked in the door, they would get their workout yeah, in. Yeah, you know. So I mean, it's just a game. It, it's it's always going to be there. Like I said, it's a hobby. You know, I, I, I plan to go. I don't get to play nearly as much. I mean, I still track everything I've done, and that's one thing I've done since like day one. I mean, I used to make notes in my phone of you know the buy-in amount and cash-out amount and make notes of my session. And then I still do it. I mean, there's a poker tracker apps and all that stuff. And now, I mean, my curves are a lot more different because of the fact that I'm not logging as many sessions. And I mean, it went from being one of those things where I was probably like where you consider a, a true part-time player to like now I log as many hours to be truly novice, you know, of logging like less than 10 hours a month, which is just, I mean, it's nothing. I mean, it's, you can't. You know, I can't get mad at myself. You know, it, it, poker becomes like, it's almost like the golf thing. I don't know if you've played golf, but like I've been good at golf at one point in time in my life. And it was like whenever I had no responsibilities, but it's a lot of time that you have to put into it to be good. And then whenever you get away from it and you lose that swing, you know how much work it took to get it. And so poker is kind of that same thing too, where I don't really get frustrated myself if I, if I don't play well, because it's strictly an outing and I know where my mistake was, but no, I mean, that's. It's kind of, you know, the game. It's still fun. You know, it still challenges me. If I, And if I got lucky, I'm fully aware that I got completely lucky in certain spots, too. Like, once you get closer to 40, there's just not that much competition <laughs> for, you know, for 30-somethings anymore. The psychological comparison that you gave is, is interesting about knowing when you got lucky. I also like that you talked about people who you can tell this is a lot of money to them. One of the things that I explained to a buddy of mine who plays about as often as me, which is... 10 hours in probably a year but he gets really frustrated and will explain to me a hand and talk about the the guy making a stupid decision on the other end of the of the hand one of the things i tell him is do you ever consider that that guy could be worth 2.4 million dollars well then he should be smarter and not make that bad play (laughs) well so if he understands the game so i hear those arguments too but my argument against that would be Maybe you have a tourist in town who only plays 10 hours a year, and this is his opportunity to take a chance where maybe he even knows the percentages. Like, he knows that staying into the river, he has a 10% chance of winning, but he wants to pay $50 for that chance of winning $800. So it has nothing to do with long-term strategy. He's just a tourist, and he wants to gamble. He's and in the moment, yeah. Yeah, I mean... I, it, it bothers me a little when I see people get frustrated for the guy on third base at the blackjack table hitting on 15 when the, when the dealer's showing a two. It's like, hey, if he does that consistently, or even if he doesn't do that consistently, and he just wants to gamble, 
If he if he has a, a hunch that he's going to get a six or less, let the guy gamble. He might just be in town for Mardi Gras, and they don't have a casino where he lives in Oregon. But I think that's like keeping the whole thing of like just sports in general, and like whenever you played, you know, on a competitive level and all that stuff, where. Like with poker and realizing that that guy is making a bad decision and he got lucky. I mean, it's the same thing. Like it's swinging at a 3-0 pitch that's slightly out of the zone because you're trying to capitalize on the moment and everybody's teeing off and you're the only guy in the lineup that's 0 for 3 for so far in the day. You know, and, and that's kind of that same thing. That guy's just taking a shot, just seeing what happens. Whenever I first started playing, I was definitely 100% like I was a jerk at times. I mean, I would berate a player because they did something dumb and I would just pop off at the top of my head. I'm like, that's, and it took, it took some years, but like, that's anything in life. Right. So, I mean, it took me to realize like, you know, let's just let him make the mistake. Let's let him feel comfortable whenever he's at the table. If he's not playing well, if he's not smart, just damn the bad luck, man, you'll get him next time. And you just kind of go from there. And that's emotional intelligence and maturation. I think when you can realize that he has a different makeup, a different psychology, and he has different, motivations and and he's definitely going to think differently than somebody who gets to play 212 times a year and keeps a spreadsheet at home and thinks long term i mean how many people do you encounter in life who think short term yeah and who are selfish right like most of the time when you have a discourteous driver i'm being generous there (laughs) but it's usually just somebody who is selfish like when somebody complains about this this ethnicity is a bad driver well that ethnicity, you would probably say, is also not considerate of other people. That's usually what it is. Yeah, and it's so, also the low-hanging fruit, too, whenever you attack something like that as well, too. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a, you go for the obvious thing, too, sometimes, right? Like, whenever uh, whenever people attack, like, uh, you know, it's, it's that fat guy, that asian woman driving which is you know typically where everybody goes you know and then it's fun it adds a little spice to life so i was i had my mom in the passenger seat one time we were going down i-10 in houston and somebody pulled out from like so where she was sitting from her right from both of our right but she was closer to the play let's say and the car pulls out right in front of me and i was going like 65 coming off of i-10 and all i did was just swerved out of the way it wasn't like a yank of the wheel but just it was a quick decision in the moment that doesn't that sort of thing doesn't rattle me i know people i come from stock that would get very very (laughs) pissed off in that situation so after that swerve they would be cursing and mfing that guy and trying to flip him off to me, you wouldn't be able to tell that that just happened to me if you interacted with me in the next 30 seconds. And so we got to the red light and my mom is like, how are you okay? And I'm like, well, you know how, you know that uh, piece of, of car, that, I don't know, what to, not the windshield, but the... It's called the apex, right? Uh, is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah, the apex that runs along the side of the windshield. On each and side. It, it'll create a blind spot for you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah, you. The apex. So he probably just couldn't see me because of that. It happens all the time. And she's like, and that's it? And I'm like, yeah, have you never made that mistake where you just didn't see the person? He's not deliberately trying to kill us on the road. It's, it's pretty obvious. And so if I encounter a player who's doing stupid stuff at the table, I view it as a way to build emotional intelligence and fortitude and like not have this impact my psychological makeup. And it'll, it'll make me stronger in the future. Like if, 
if you ever travel with somebody and they're a total pain in the ass, they're late every time, they make the entire tour bus late, and you start to complain about them, well, you have to remember, you'll be dealing with this sort of thing, maybe not in this same way, but you'll be dealing with it the rest of your life. You might as well learn to work on your internal state so that you can better manage it the rest of your life. And so I think that poker is so much... There's so much psychology going on, and that's just one tiny example is realizing that what this guy has in front of him is not everything that he has, or he may be living the paycheck to paycheck. You'll never know that information, yet you still have to strategize against him. Yeah. It's just, I, I love that. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that, that's, you know, like, that's completely it. Like, the sharp memory. It's like, like being a defensive back or a pitcher or something like that. You know, like, you have to have a sharp memory when it comes to poker. Like, little things, right? So, like, I mean, of course, like, I take a terrible beat. Like, I'm never pumped up about it. But, you know, it's a swing, and I know it's going to happen. And, you know, it's, that's the game. I've always learned that the quicker the other players see you get over it, it helps the complexion of the game, too. So, for instance, like I take a beat and I'm like, oh, wow, now I need to add on. So I immediately just kind of calmly add on. What does that mean? I just put more money on the table. And so uh, so I'll put some more money on the table. Oh, meaning that the the hand you just played in. It it took a chunk out of my stack. I need to have more money to feel comfortable, defend myself on on the table. And players will see that. They'll react and be like, man, that was a really crappy beat. And I'm like, ah, you know, it kind of happens. And it also just kind of sets a vibe for other people at the table, too. Like, if they take that beat. Now, they may take it hard, but if they're sitting next to me, they just saw me take that beat, they may be more willing to just kind of stick it out and just, you know, keep the game going if it is a good game. And and just getting mad and things like that, it just, it could just pull the plug on a game. Especially, like, right now, like, that's one thing playing short-handed at Harris. So, six-handed or less is considered short. Meaning six players at the table. Yep. And then, uh, or or ten-handed, it's huge. Your range of hands, the hands that you want to play. You know, it gets so much bigger six-handed. How does that change playing 10 players, which is normal, versus what it is now, which is six? People are just going to be more selective whenever it's full, meaning they're going to play uh, They're going to play the hits, blackjack hands kind of thing. They're going to play pairs. They're going to play suited cards. Whenever you're playing six-handed, it's really hard to make a pair in poker. Like, I mean, it really is. And when you're playing six-handed, it's even harder to make a pair. So making third pair on the flop, you know, it's... A lot of times a winner in, in six-handed poker. So things like that. It's just a different strategy. And so if you have a malcontent at the table in a six-handed game, it can completely kill it. It makes it not fun because this person is complaining. They're just bitching just a bitch. And then, you know, and then it kind of sucks the energy, you know, off of the table whenever you're playing short-handed opposed to if you're playing full, you know, you're playing nine-handed and there's nine people at the table and one guy's kind of being mad well it doesn't matter because he's really not going to get that many hands to play on a regular basis and if he's playing frustrated you know tilting as they call it in poker then he's probably just going to end up losing a lot of money busting off the table or he's going to be good for the game because his nose is going to be wide open and he's just going to keep losing and so which you know that could be good for the game but shorthanded it makes a little different it's a little tricky a lot of people feel uncomfortable playing shorthanded because it doesn't happen that often you don't get the opportunity to play that shorthanded like you saying that you don't play that often you probably have very little experience playing shorthanded and you would, you're going to probably feel a little more uncomfortable playing shorthanded just because of the fact of, well, this guy's raising every hand, and that's what I do. We play shorthanded. Like, I'm going to probably raise, like, 60% of the pots. Unless somebody else is doing it, then I'll just let them be the action. But action goes through me if we're playing shorthanded. That's, that's usually the strategy. One of the reasons I stopped playing a long time ago is because all mean? walks of life when you get a talker at the table, like a Daniel Negrano, but like a wannabe Negrano, 
but he just doesn't have the intelligence to to say things that are witty and he's he's talking through every hand and he comments on every hand he he asks you about each hand that you have i was the player who i don't know the percentages like if if i have king jack in my hand and i'm playing against a pair of tens i don't know that i have a 42% chance of winning I haven't played enough hands, kind of like in baseball, when you don't have enough at-bats. There are just things you don't know about hitting with a with a 1-1 one, one count. Whenever something would happen where I would commit a mistake of some sort and then have two players talking shit, it, I would seriously look at it like, well, I'm going to be wealthy in the long term because <laughs> I have the capability to withstand the ridicule have they not considered that I'm just a tourist or okay. so? All right. So, man, that's that's going like way too. I mean, way too deep into thinking about what those two random guys are saying. Plain and simple. Right. So what you've done in life with your sales positions and all that stuff, it, you know, to lead to where you're at right now. If you're working for the company that you were working for whenever you were crushing it on that sales force. Right. And the guy who had been there for a year comes in and criticizes a move that you made. And he's kind of chirping to other new guy. Aren't you just going to be like, who cares? They're just douchebags. Well, so it's interesting you bring that up because I've, I've had this argument before where when I try to explain a thought process, people think, dude, you are way overanalyzing this. And then I explain, no, this this is something felt like it's it's almost not a thought process until I have to articulate it. Then it sounds like. Whoa, this is delineated for for 30 minutes. And and I'm like, well, that's only because I have to explain it. The thought process happens in maybe like three quarters of a second where everything I just explained to you is is just felt. All right. I, I get what you're saying. So basically what you're saying is if that guy criticizes something who's newer on the job, you have a reason for why you came to that whole thought process. Like you didn't just come up with it on the spot. That wasn't the thing. Like you have thought about it. You've replayed it. You've done it a different way. You've realized that this is the best possible way. Well, those two guys at the poker table, like you saying that it doesn't matter because a long term in life, I'll be more successful. Well, if those guys are real players and they're criticizing it, well, they've thought about that spot too. And, and maybe they know it really well. Now I hate table talk, but just say that, you know, those guys are real players. Well then their opinion just like you think that your opinion on that sales thing should be worth listening to because you've prepared it, you've thought about it, you've worked it out. And same thing too. I mean, if those guys put in the time, they put in the hours and they're giving you an opinion, it may not be the one you want to hear, but well, it may be right. So then taken further, their willingness to express that opinion is also a knock against them in my mind. Like I agree. From an emotional intelligence standpoint. I agree. I agree. They want to show you how smart they are. Personally, like I like table talk. I, I don't, that's not my table talk. I get at the table and I talk, I chirp, I'll be self-deprecating, whatever, whatever the mood dictates, I'll go there. The last thing I want to do whenever I'm playing cards is talk about cards. And I used to do it. And, you know, unless the guy sitting directly next to me is someone that I actually could value his opinion, the conversation gets really low. And then we kind of discuss that little hand amongst ourselves. And it won't be right there. It may be like five hands later, 
will ask for that opinion of how that hand was played because it's somebody that I know that I may have been playing with. Yeah, that can years. be fun. And like, so, but but as far as table talk across that, I, I completely get away from that. Like, let's talk about something else. Like, let's talk about your fantasy team that I don't care about because I really don't want to hear your opinion on how I played that last hand. You know, like I have a thought process. I know what I was trying to do. And so whenever it comes to table talk and things like that, guys who give their opinion, I typically just say, yeah, you're probably, yeah, you're probably right. And cool. You just gave me a little bit of insight on the way you process that hand. I don't think you would play it that way because you're probably too scared. But if that's the way you think the correct way was to play it, then I'll just, I'll just store it and I'll just keep it. And then I'll just use that Against. two hours from now, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if need be, you know, if, if yeah. my memory lets me, lets me do it. There's just, there's so much stupidity. It, it boggles my mind. The criticisms, it just seems like such a waste of breath. Like well, the lingo, but like when they start to, when, when players start to use lingo, or, or this would be a better waste of breath. Like when somebody says, what'd you have? I had King 10 offsuit. Like I say that like automatically, it does not matter what I had. And no, because it, it comes off instantly, they believe me. And I'm like, we're playing poker. Like, why would you even ask the question? It just makes no sense. The There's just so much stupidity. It. It. What did you have? I had it. I had it. Oh, I, had I like it. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had it. And they were like, what's it? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I had it. Yeah. And that's well, it. then you and get then a reputation just... as an a-hole. No, no, you don't. Because it, it's all about the way you say it. You're not saying it uh, to be a jerk. That's You're true. saying, you know, like I, like I said, like, I enjoy the table banter. I, if, if a dealer... You do? Like, I hate the table banter. <laughs> like, I, but just conversation. I mean, it, it's, it's this right here, right? Yeah. So, so you and I are sitting if right here. If you find somebody you like, and, yeah. and we have, you know, four other guys, you know, sitting at this table right now. And we start talking about... What uh, our trip to Vegas, or or whenever you were in college and you'd come to Harris and you just get drilled by the belt, by the blackjack dealers, you know, mm-hmm. you had no business being in here. Yeah. That story at the table relaxes everybody. Everybody's got a terrible mm-hmm. gambling story about how stupid they were whenever they were young. So like that brings down like that gets away from the poker talk. That kind of just creates this. I can connect with this guy. You know, like I said, like tell me about your terrible fantasy team. I don't care about because it it, it leads to another conversation. That's why I preferred live poker to online every day like i hated online poker like i hated it like the whole black friday thing 2011 was it the uh, the black one internet poker when online poker just got completely shut down they called it black friday it allowed live poker to thrive it it, for, it gave me such a huge edge yeah it was 2011 april 15 2011 was uh was whenever black friday happened and online poker got completely shut down and that gave me a huge edge. I loved it because now you had to go to the casino to play. And the poker boom was still going. It, it was still big. Poker was still huge. ESPN was still getting big numbers on it. And that was like, I loved it. You know Why they shut it down? Basically, it was, it was a Ponzi scheme, so to speak, with full tilt. And then the cheating stuff and everything else that happened with like ultimate bet and absolute poker. But like full tilt poker was operating with, uh, they didn't have enough money to cover all the money on the site. Now, mind you, they weren't stealing the money. Like, that wasn't the thought process behind it. It was basically, they had a ton of pros. I mean, that was Phil Ivey, it was Daniel Negreanu, it was Jennifer Horman, it was Chris Ferguson. It was all of these big-name poker guys, and they were all a part of uh, a full tilt, and they didn't have enough money if it got shut down to pay out everybody. And, I mean, we had friends that had just got smoked on. I mean, they were guys, I mean, every online site got locked down. Like, the Department of Justice locked down everything. Have you ever been out to Vegas for the World Series? I haven't. Yeah, it's a spectacle. I mean, it was cool. I mean, it's. I haven't been in years now. It's probably my longest run of not going. But the World Series, it's cool. I mean, it's an event. You know? And you'd play? I'd never played in the main event. I'd go play some of the prelim events. I mean, they have events ranging from $1,000 to 
to to ten thousand to even like the fifty thousand dollar players championship or something like that. I mean, the most I ever played in was like a twenty five hundred dollar buy in tournament. But uh, but you know, I'd go out there and I, I would play. It's all relative. I mean, it's all relative. I mean, I had relative to what you have or how good you are. Relative to your bankroll, you know, like that was a thing when I said like I kept stats of like everything I've always done with poker. Where it was, I mean, it was my hobby and I enjoyed it. So I was always going to, I was going to lie to myself. And so I practiced proper bankroll management, things like that, and made sure that I had enough money for it and everything. And, and I never, like, this is one of those things, never went into my bank account to ever go play cards. Like, so you set aside, let's say $25,000 and that's your bankroll for poker. Yeah. Whatever it needs to be. It's not necessarily all that you have. It's just, you know, what you've allocated. It needs to be percentage based and all that stuff. Like X amount of buy-ins you should always have available. So if you play no matter the limit, so you need to have at least X amount. So maybe 20 buy-ins for that game. You're not going to lose. I mean, you should never go on a streak where you lose 20 sessions in a row kind of thing. If you do, then you should really reevaluate playing. And so, you know, whether it be 20 buy-ins, 50 buy-ins, whatever's comfortable for you. Now, I didn't do this to support myself, but I had friends that did. So I would pick their brains about, hey, man, how do you, how do you manage your bankroll? After bills are paid for, then we operate off of the bankroll. It determines on whether or not they may play a $1,500 buy-in tournament or they may play a $2,500 buy-in tournament. You know, or they're going to play 10, 20, no limit, or they're going to back down and play 5, 10, no limit. You know, just based off of that, where they're going to buy in for 4,000 in the cash game or 2,000 in the cash game. And so it's just, uh, it's all relative. I mean, it, it does not matter. The the biggest thing about like the stack sizes, people get so caught up in that playing cash of how much money is on the table. And like, it doesn't really matter. Like for me, it doesn't matter. If the game is huge, the game is small, I'm there to play. I can adjust. I'm smart enough to do it. I'm there for the sport. Is the old adage true? If you can't spot the sucker, then you're probably the sucker? Uh, probably not. Mm. Especially nowadays where it used to be based off of that, I think, because everybody played live. Right. So how many people have you met that just don't know how to have a conversation? They can't look you in the eye whenever they're actually talking to you. That number's going way up in recent years. Yeah. So so I think like that was the whole thing where the sucker was the guy who was awkward. Well, now, man, like every one of these damn kids that come to the table is awkward. awkward. Yeah. You know, they're just they're just awkward. I mean, they they spend half their time behind their phone or earbuds in and which is which is no big deal. I mean. But it's just kind of one of those things where the the sucker aspect doesn't come off as much because because poker's changed so much because it's not as mainstream because it's not on ESPN every single day. Now you have to seek it like you have to have Poker Go. You know you have to download the app. You have to pay for it. So the the bad players are a lot better than what they used to be. You know the tourist aspect. Those guys still have a clue. You know like now I can basically be considered a tourist. I don't play a, a ton anymore. And you know they would see me play and. You know, they go, oh, well, you know, I, I would have to earn some respect because I may not look like it right away. The sucker aspect is definitely not there anymore. I've never played a hand of online poker for two reasons. One, fear of getting addicted because I could see it being <laughs> so fun. And I don't want to stay up until 4 a.m. playing poker and ruin my next day's productivity or whatever. Uh, the second would be having friends who are genius software engineers I just think it would be so easy to steal money as if you, not even if you're the owner of the company of full tilt or probably not a big name like that, but a smaller boutique operation, just one of the engineers working for that company. I just think it would be so easy to steal that there's no way that I would 
I would ever put real money on there. Yeah, you know, but here's the thing, Riley. Like, that's that's a skeptic's attitude, right? Most people are good in this world, though. Like, most people aren't, like, that's, it's not going to happen. Like, the cheating scandals and stuff that happen with, like, absolute and... Um, Inevitable. Yeah, and but it, you know what? It, ha- it happened, like, heads up. You know, it didn't happen in, like, these ring games. It didn't happen in tournaments, and that was why tournaments were so big online. And the cheating thing, you would swear it was cheating if you saw the software that people installed on their computers for trackers. I'm talking, like, every single hand that you're dealt, every single hand that, you know, if, if a guy pops up on your table, so maybe, you know, your your screen name, you know, Bradley D, and it pops up on my screen that, oh, wait, Bradley D is at my table color changes, statistics of hands that I've played against you with voluntary flops played, meaning that money that you chose to put into the pot whenever I was sitting at the table with you, uh, just all those percentages, uh, three bet percentages, all this stuff. There's so many poker trackers out there and all this information just pops up. And you're talking about guys sitting there with like three, four screens in front of them with six tables on each screen playing cash. And they're constantly sitting there and all this stuff is just popping up. Information, information, information. And telling them what to do on the right thing. Wow. And, like, and that's been like that, you know? And, mm. and that was whenever poker was, the online poker was huge. And then now it's not there. There's still some sites that you can play. There's still all that, you know, the, the poker tracker stuff that's still available. But yeah, I mean, it, it, one, of the, one of the strategies, whenever I would play a little bit, I played so little online, it just was not enjoyable for me. But one of the strategies that someone told me to do was, if somebody's at your table, just go through the quick search, see how many tables they're playing. And it allows you to make a decision on how much pressure you can apply against that player. If this guy's playing 14 tables right now, well, I'm going to put a little bit more pressure on him because if he gets three bad, he's probably just going to fold because he's probably got a hand that he's worried about on another table. You know, so the percentages would say just raise him whenever he's in the hand because he's multi-tabling. Now, the guy who's only got two tables going up, all right, back off, a little more cautious because he's paying more attention to these two spots. It's not the cheating, but the information is it's so quick. It's so ready. I mean, the Internet's a powerful tool and use for online gaming as well. I met three guys in their 30s in Playa del Carmen that were living in my building where we stay when we go to Playa del Carmen usually. They were splitting the place. I think it was $1,800 a month, a nice loft, three-bedroom. I believe each of their rooms were on separate floors, and so their rent was $600 a month each. They had been living there for seven years, and all of their jobs was professional, quote-unquote professional. I don't know what constitutes a professional if in you pay the your poker bills world. doing it. Oh, that's it. Okay. I mean, that's so it's easier to do in Mexico, right? So they were living on 1500 to 2000 a month. They told me in a good year they made $55,000 a year, sometimes 75 and 80. I don't know how much truth they're sharing with me, you know, but they certainly were living the life that they claimed to be living. I'll say this much, guys who I've been around that, you know, like, quote unquote, play for a living and they really do play for a living. They don't lie. Mm. Like they don't. I mean, they they, I have one of my one of my really good friends. I actually we became really good friends sitting at a poker table at the Beau Rivage. It was like such small world, too. He's sitting at the the poker table next to me and we just start talking like like I do. I I talk at the table and the Beau Rivage is in Biloxi, Mississippi. So, and uh, it's an MGM resort. Super nice. It's a baby Bellagio too. I mean, it's, it's set up like it. The chips look like it. The, the <laughs> curtains hanging over the tables look like it. And so uh, we're sitting at the table and I just started talking to him, just making conversation with him. And uh, his name's Chuck. And so Chuck and Chuck actually lives in Houston now and he's playing for a living in Houston right now. 
Because there are a lot of illegal card rooms. They're in not Houston. illegal. They're they're not illegal in the sense of uh, they're com- the government is completely aware of them. They they did have a little shutdown where they gave them some flack, but it was during an election year. This was a couple years ago, I think. And then uh, and then they reopened, and, and all the money was good, and and the card rooms honored it all. I mean, he was one where he was stuck. He he was lucky because a lot of times guys who play for a living just keep chips with them. And they'll, they'll use that, you know, they'll just walk out of the table with it and, and just put them in their pocket. And he had like $15,000 in chips from this card room. And he was like, man, I'm so lucky because the card room got shut down. He was, or it might've been a little bit less than that. I, I say a little bit less, but like maybe like closer to like the 10, 12, which I mean, still though, that's, you know, five grand. And so uh, he said, I'm so lucky because I cashed out a bunch of my chips. I had like 30,000 in chips with me whenever I had left like a couple weeks or last week. And then this time I went, I was just, I didn't want that many chips at my house. And so, I mean, he could have been out like 30,000 until they reopened the room. And there was a lot of people that had a lot of chips at home that wow. were worth nothing because they were shut down and then they reopened. But, but back to the story of like, you know, meeting someone at the poker table. So Chuck, he and I just sitting there talking small world. Turns out that he's in PA school at South Alabama. And, uh, and then he's not only in PA school at South Alabama, but he's in PA school at South Alabama with my wife's next door neighbor from her childhood. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I was with her last night. And then that was it. Like we just kind of started being friends and we started talking and he paid for his way through PA school with online poker, like Whoa. online poker. Like that's what he, he was valedictorian of his high school. He played online poker to pay his tuition, all his expenses, never asked his parents for a dollar. He was a military kid. His mom's from Japan. His dad, uh, his dad, I'm not sure where his dad is. Dad might be actually from like the Northwest. And then, uh, but lives in Pensacola. Like that's where he grew up at. And then, uh, but yeah, paid for his whole way through school with online poker. And then Black Friday smoked him, but, uh, but not in a terrible way either. I mean, he was able to get his money back. Like Black Friday screwed a lot of people. Like he set up an account in Canada and he flew to Canada and, and rented an apartment and opened up a bank account. So whenever they opened up the funds one day, he actually was able to get his money transferred into a Canadian bank and get all his money off a of full tilt. So he can actually have some money. Wow. What percentage of the game is taken away when you can't see their facial expressions and mannerisms? For me, all of it. For me, all of That's it. That's another reason I wouldn't play online. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's it's clicking buttons. You know, it's it's a video game. And I, I, I didn't like it. I mean, I've always, like I said, I've said it over and over the table talk, the meeting someone new, make a new friend. And, and I mean, this guy was invited to my wedding. Like we're still friends to this day. We went to Europe. He came to Europe with us. He met us in Europe whenever we were in Italy, you know, a few years back and he traveled with us, you know? And, mm-hmm. and like, that was it. Like this is a guy that I just met at the poker table and we became friends. He was intelligent. We had good conversation. And to this day, he's still, I mean, he was a PA for an orthopedic and he worked his butt off. He was working like, 60, 70 hours a week for this guy. Mm. And the orthopedic even said, like, I've never had an employee. I've never had a PA last more than like six, seven months. And he worked for this guy for like two years, <laughs> you know, because he was just just head down work ethic. Let me make a bunch of money. And met with a financial advisor. I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to actually roll the dice and and be a professional poker player, then let me do it now. And mm. then that's what he did. So like he quit his job in the fall of like 2014. And then he traveled and he's never gone back to work since. So he's just been playing poker for 11. So yeah, I have some friends like that. I mean, my buddy that we had the conversation about, uh, Ben Mintz, who's now like Barstool's new guy, he had a video today 
It was the Ole Miss game earlier this season where Ole Miss kicked a field goal to win the game. And his buddy, his roommate, who is uh, Playboy Marty, if any Barstool guys are out there, that, that Playboy Marty videoed, they make the field goal, Ben does the hottie toddy, gosh almighty, the, the Ole Miss chant that they do. And Marty was, was filming with not to Ben's knowledge. And it was basically just to, it was going to be a funny reaction, right? Like it was either going to be priceless because Ben was going to go nuts or it was going to be priceless because Ben was going to break down and cry because the lane train was derailed, you know? <laughs> so lane he, Kiffin. Lane coach. Kiffin, exactly. Yeah, the head coach of Ole Miss. And so, uh, so Ben goes nuts. And the video, Marty tweeted it and like tagged Dave Portnoy, who is the, you know, the creator of Borstool Sports. So he tags El Presidente Portnoy and, and he retweeted it. This is like a week after Portnoy interviewed the president, right? Yes. Yes. It was like all in that same time frame. And then he's retweeting my goofy buddy that we've been, you know, friends for 15 years or so. And, uh, and then he, he tags it as like uh, SEC football just hits different. Well, Lane Kiffin, the coach of Ole Miss, follows Portnoy. He, he loves the Barstool guys. And he retweets in response to Portnoy, yes, it does. You know, just SEC football just hits different. So Ben, who is a personality in uh, in Baton Rouge or, um, for ESPN Radio in Baton Rouge, he had a show there. But on Sunday mornings, they would do a pregame show for, for the NFL football. And his phone is like blowing up all night long, like just retweet, notification, everything else, because Dave Portnoy tweeted this. But then he wakes up in the morning and he sees that he's now being followed by Dave Portnoy. And he's got a DM that he reads like five minutes before he goes on the air, he said. Like he told me this whole story. He he couldn't get the words out. He was so excited. I was so excited for him, just seeing your friend just do something that's crazy. And then uh so Portnoy sends him a DM. I was like, Hey man, um wanna see if, if you would interest be interested in coming to work for Barstool. You know, I've been doing this for, for so many years. I think I have an eye for talent whenever I see one. Uh, give me a call and you can get a chance. Obviously, Portnoy, you know, the, the story makes it look as though it was just some random guy who went cheering. But he saw Ben's credentials and they have a really good relationship with like a lot of the LSU people with Barstool Sports. And so uh, so he made some phone calls, found out about it and then uh, realized that Ben was, you know, he was real. I mean, he'd been doing sports talk radio in Shreveport and Bossier and things. I used to go on a show. I did like a month. I did a weekly segment on Mondays where I'd go on and I would just kind of shoot the shit with him. About uh, about the Saints or, or any other thing in sports for uh, for about twenty minutes or so, and then uh, then the the Portnoy DM he sees that he is on cloud nine like through the whole show, and then so he uh, he finally gets a chance to tell Dave hey come me a call I can talk whenever and so Dave calls him and then the first thing this is this is just great because it's so Ben if if you if you know him or look him up he just had the video go viral this morning Barstool Mincy that's his name on Twitter. And so, I'll link it in the show notes. I follow him and, and have. He's a friend of a friend because of you. But, yeah, he's quite the personality. Yeah. So, like, he, he texted me this morning. He's like, did you see the video yet? I'm like, no. He's, like, super viral. It was, like, 280,000 hits in, like, two hours. Like, that's how many views just off of his Twitter. That's not even counting all the, all the reposts and things like that that don't count. Earlier, it was, like, over, it was over like 400, almost 500,000 views. So, it was just nuts just to see your friend go super viral. But anyway, so his voice, that raspy voice, he almost sounds like Patrick Mahomes with a little bit more of a redneck twang because he grew up in Monroe and he's got Mississippi ties and all this other stuff. Important on his first words were, your voice is exactly like I hoped it would be. And so, uh, so they had the conversation and he asked him, um, would, you, would you be interested in coming to work for Barstow? And he's like, hell yeah. He's like, you know, uh, how much you know, would it take? And he's like, honestly, I have no idea. 
And so he went back and he talked to his mom and his dad and anybody else and give him some a bit of advice, figure out how much it costs to live in New York. And then, uh, and then from there, he came back and he gave Portnoy a number. They agreed on it, and it just happened so fast. And he's keeping, he's giving me the play-by-play with all this stuff, which it was just really cool just to see something happen for one of your friends and something that you follow so closely too, just sports in general. And, like, I'm a Barstool guy. I listen to a lot of their shows. And so seeing that, that whole process happen was just like me just sitting on the sideline where I remember him doing his first shows in Shreveport and him, like, texting me like dude this is going so bad like i just like I, i'm so lost i burned all my material in the first like 30 minutes of the show <laughs> and so and to, to now like getting offered a job at barstool sports and it's just crazy and so uh so that hell happened with a contract and everything else and then he comes back to portnoy and like renegotiates a deal and was like hey i want to bring my producer with me and portnoy's like do you want me to just hire somebody else like because you're asking me to he's like i don't know who this guy is and so, but the story with like Playboy and Marty, which is actually pretty cool too, was Ben was in Shreveport for like four and a half years or so. And he got let go because the station reformatted. And he walked into work and then all of a sudden, like he had no job. It was done. Station went from being sports talk and like CBS affiliate with like Jim Rome and, and Boomer and like th- their show for sports talk, Boomer Sison and all, to being like office rock. <laughs> And so, needless to say, he was caught off. You know, he was caught off guard. This and, is in March, right? Yeah, this is in COVID breaks out. This is February. This was like right after the Super Bowl, I think. I think that was right after the Super Bowl. And so, uh, so he's like, he has no job. And they were like, you know, it wasn't your fault. Like, if we stayed here, you were good, which it was good. He was like the only show that generated any kind of traction there. And then, uh, so Marty was his producer for like two days, and all of a sudden they have no job and he felt terrible. And then he had this offer. He was trying to find something to do. So he had this offer from Baton Rouge because he'd go on T-Bob a bear show off the bench, T-Bob and Jordy. And he'd give out gambling picks like every Thursday. Ben, Ben's a big gambler. Like he was that whole, uh, staying in Vegas. Like he was part of that crew. He would go to Vegas. He would stay out there. He's had a couple of really deep runs in the main event, the $10,000 buy-in. And uh, that he put up himself 10 grand. No, no, man. Nobody puts up money themselves for that. Very few people put up money themselves for, uh, for those $10,000 buy-ins. You sell pieces. He might've only had like uh, maybe 10%, 12% of himself on those type of deals. It's just, it's a huge chunk. I mean, realistically you should have like a million dollar bankroll to play in a $10,000 buy-in event, you know? So, I mean, it, it, you need sky high numbers to justify playing in those. And then, uh, but if there's one tournament people take a shot at, that's the one. I mean, it's it's the lightning in a bottle. It's a seven million dollar payout. Wow! And what do you have to finish to get paid even a little bit? So, usually bottom money. So, in, in some of those spots, bottom money is just like less than mm. your buy-in. It might, or not less than your buy, less than double your buy-in. So, ten thousand of buy-in, bottom money where the. I think it's around 30% of the field or so that they might pay. Oh, that's pretty good. And then uh, maybe a little less than that. It used to be more. And then slowly the casino, casino used to not make as much money off of tournaments. Like they used to just kind of take their rake at like 10%. And then all of a sudden it got to be where casinos started making like fourth place money and then like third place money and then second place money. And then now the casino literally makes more money off of the registration fee than they pay out in first place. Wow. Yeah. So if you want to talk about like what's a bad deal is playing tournament poker for a living. <laughs> so you're putting up 10 grand and then you have to pay a registration fee of. That one is included. So like the, the main event, it may be 
9900 and then $100 goes to, mm-hmm. like, they kind of make that one even, like, 10000 But typically, like, a lot of these tournaments that, like, local, like, WSOP circuit, right? So, World Series of Poker circuit events that kind of travel around the United States, like Harris New Orleans has one, where the tournament buy-in is 365 for, like, just a lower-level buy-in tournament, right? So, like, they'll, they'll run a bunch of 365 tournaments. Well, then, like, you read the fine print, and, like, it's not even $300 to the prize pool in 65. It's, like, $281 goes to the prize pool, and then the rest of it is just all rake. And then that money just goes for everything. And so, I mean, you have these tournaments where you have 350 players or so, and then you're you're doing, what, $84 per player. So times 300. So that's $25,000 right there. Wow. That the casino is taking off the top. So some poker rooms got timed rake, which is every 30 minutes you put up $6. Correct. So you're paying $12 an hour to play. I've read where if you wanted to play full-time poker, if you wanted that to be your primary source of income, you're starting negative about $17,500 if you, if you play 40 hours a week like a full-time job. I'd believe it. I've, I never did the math on that because it would just be way too depressing. As a, I'd rather just show up and have fun. Now, if I played for a living, I think you have to do the math on that kind of thing to figure out exactly where you are. But at the same time, too, when it comes to one thing I do know is that when it comes to like the rake stuff, the, the time rake, I, I hated it because you literally saw money coming out of your stack. It killed the action in games, too, because guys knew that when a new dealer came in, they were going to have to put up. So if guys that were winning... Our guys that were losing, it gave them an out mm. because they're like, oh, I'm just going to get up on the push because I don't want to pay. When the dealer comes in and pushes the other dealer all the way, they're going to get up on the push and not pay the time. It killed the game. Like, it really was a big deal. Psychologically, it got me for a long time of playing in the time rate games. And it's more beneficial to play shorter times whenever you are playing time rate. Like, it's more beneficial to play shorter, shorter sessions, should I say. On the drop rake, it's different because if you're not involved in the hand, then you're technically not losing any money out of your stack because it's only being pulled out of the pot whenever you win. I mean, you're, you're losing just on the hand, but you're not necessarily losing money to the hand or to the casino unless you drag the pot. So the time rake thing, not, not good in my opinion, but uh, short, shorter sessions whenever you do play in those. What percentage of hands do you fold where you have – Ace, six, seven, eight, or nine? A lot. <laughs> I mean, like, well, it depends, though. You say fold, like, all right, so let me ask you a question. Somebody who doesn't play, when you get that hand, what do you do with it? I usually play. W- you, what do you mean by play? I usually do see a flop, which is the next three cards. Do you raise? Or do you just Very call? rarely. Usually, if I'm playing aggressive, I will raise if I have ace, two, three, four, or five. You'll raise with those hands? Yes. All right, because it gives you the opportunity to, to make a pair or make a wheel, meaning like a, a, a low straight, ace to five. All right, is that why you play uh, that? Again, it, it depends on if I'm playing aggressive that night or not. I mean, it, there's so many factors, as you know, but more so than if I had ace, six, seven, eight, or nine, with ace one through five, or two through five, I would probably more times than not raise. So here's my thing, right? So just basic poker strategy kind of thing is if you have one of those medium to low aces right there, meaning that the, the card paired with it is, is 
a lower card, right? You have kicker issues. So if you hit your ace, then your second card isn't really going to do much for you because anybody who has ace jack is going to beat you in that spot right there, right? So your your three four does nothing for you. So my thing is, is that if you raise with ace king or you raise with ace queen, every time you get that hand pretty much, right? That's a, that's a premium hand. You should raise with that, especially if you're in position, even if you're not in position. It signifies strength. So by limping with a bad ace, meaning that just calling the minimum or not putting in a raise with an ace four does nothing to show the strength of your hand, much like if you limped in with a seven six. No one gives you credit for anything. They have no reason to respect you just putting in the bare minimum to see the flop. But if you make a raise with the hand, they have to automatically respect that you have something that would be good enough to come in with a raise. So don't limp with those hands. Fold them or raise with them. That's that's the strategy. It gives you more than one one way to win a hand whenever you whenever you apply pressure early with those hands. So stop limping with that crap. It does no good. I like that. So and then if it's suited, then you can put in a three bet. You know, gives you gives you an opportunity to make another way to win a hand. Going back to the story about Ben Mintz, who basically got a job with Barstool Sports by going viral with a video of him secretly made of him going nuts when his college football team hit a field goal. That is the sort of thing that can happen to any of us at any time, which is unreal. Justin Bieber, (laughs) YouTube, 2007, uploaded a video of himself. That's how he was discovered. Kate Upton was doing the Dougie at an LA Clippers game in 2011. Her friend uploaded it to... I don't know where she uploaded it to. Probably YouTube or, uh, or could social even media fine or something at that point. Who time, knows? Yeah. yeah, it's a good point. But that's how she was discovered. She's now married to, to Justin Verlander. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, the whole thing with Ben, like that that video came at the right time for him too, because of the whole shutdown at the Shreveport uh, radio station. And then after that happened, he had luckily had some ties in Baton Rouge, and uh, and had some things in the work. To, to go to work for for the Baton Rouge ESPN affiliate. And then COVID happened and there was no reason to have anybody n- talking about sports, much less hiring someone new to come in and talk about sports that weren't happening. So that got put on the ice right there and he didn't know what to do. And he was just kind of lost. And I remember just kind of texting when he was like, man, this sucks. Like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. And, uh, and he went to Oxford, right? So Oxford was the place where uh, he, he kind of tells a story about Oxford got his mind right a couple of times where he went to college and, it took him a long time. It took him like 10 years to graduate, so to speak. You know, he loves dropping the line that it was, he's like Van Wilder minus like the girls in the, in the fun parties. <laughs> and so, uh, and so he went to, uh, he went back to Oxford and he hung out there. One of his friends, uh, they had a house that it was either a rent house, whatever it was, doesn't matter. And they said, Hey man, you can go back there and you, you can hang out there. You can live there. So just kind of quarantine. And we all thought we were going to die of this thing, you know, back in March, you know, if anybody had it. So it didn't seem like a bad spot for him. So he went there and he was playing online poker, actually. You know, you can play on a couple sites like Bovado or, you know, Poker Bros. There's a few sites that you could play on. And, like, he won uh, one of the little tournaments and, you know, pocketed a few grand or something like that. And he was, like, perfect. Like, it was just something that was going to be able to get him to hold him over until something happened. And then uh, once they finally reannounced, like, the start, like, baseball was going to start something, the NBA was going to do the bubble all those things, he was like, oh, all right, well, let me, you know, kind of start to pursue something. I think originally he was going to try to pursue something with uh, with Ole Miss. 
sports. I think like one of their longtime guys was retiring and then that never panned out. And then he went back and I think the offer from, um, from ESPN and, and kind of started retalking that whole thing. And, and they were excited to have him since sports were going to be back and he was going to move into a spot where two of the guys were kind of splitting up doing their own show. It was Jimmy Ott is who Ben ended up co-hosting with. It was like Jimmy Ott's game time. And so, uh, so that's who he was working with. And so he took that job, did all that. And then the whole video goes viral. And then, uh, he gets playboy Morty a job by giving up some of like his own salary to, uh, to bring Playboy Morty to uh, to New York with him. And Portnoy, is, you know, his thing was like, you're willing to give up some of your own money for this guy to come? He's like, yeah. He's like, I mean, he's he's my social media guy. He's the one that does everything, you know. Like, he's going to he's gonna make me be productive, basically. He had a lot of faith in his friend to, to put out videos. In fact, his his friend is the one that put out the video that's got like a half million views today, you know, because because uh, wake up Mincy and and that's that's his whole little tag that he does wake up Mincy and he's like got to get your mind right you know it's football day, and so uh, so Playboy Morty's up there with him and and they're crushing it man he's having a great time he does um, he does every day at 11 a.m. it's Pick Central and uh, it's with uh, Brandon Walker who is the Mississippi State guy and they have a fun bet going on where the um, Brandon Walker being a Mississippi State guy, Ben being the Ole Miss guy, that was kind of the whole thing where Walker is uh, is known for being just a just a grump kind of thing around Barstool. Everybody kind of gives him crap for that, but it, you know he plays it well. It's fun, and he was like, "You're just gonna hire some dumb Ole Miss guy, just some random dude off the internet." Like that was kind of the whole little quote. <laughs> and uh, and Portnoy basically said, "Yeah, he's gonna come here. He's gonna take your job from you." And, and so they played it up, and you know, played the heel, and and they actually get along really well. And, and like Walker reached out to him, but they still kind of try to play it up. And then Walker repeatedly says, "I really don't want to like you, but you're making it really difficult." And and Ben has that personality. I mean, he is a walking cartoon character. Like if you follow him on social media, like I'm telling you, dude, I know you've never really met him, but like that's him. Like that's exactly him. Well, we know the rich get richer. When he got that job, I said, dude, let me buy you a steak. And I'm sure he's gotten plenty of offers for people to buy him steaks. I'm genuinely happy for him. I am too. You know, and that's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I'll brag about him. I'll, you know, I'll talk about him like he's my buddy, you know, and so many people I tell about your Instagram. I'm like, you got to, like, you got to follow Bradley on Instagram. Like, this is the reason why you, you want to travel the world and, and see things and, you, know, you do it. I mean, not all of us can do it, and you get to do it. You get to experience it, and you know those things that you see are, are priceless. Thank you. It's cool to see gambling go mainstream. Like Scott Van Pelt does a segment on bad beats, and I I love that. Yeah, we go from like jacked up being not. Um, you know, it used to be the big thing was the jacked up. You know, and they show the big hits with Tom Jackson and Chris Berman, and then that got you know the NFL got sued for billions of dollars, obviously. So so no more jacked up, but they do bad beats. You know, they they put gambling lines at the bottom of the screen. You know, it's, it's become mainstream. Louisiana's finally going to pass that, which is, you know, I think it's good. I mean, it's, it's a recreational activity. It, it kind of makes it a little more fun, like, for those tourists who come to town. Or you're stuck at that wedding, and you're like, oh, let's just go put, you know, let's go make a three-team parlay, you know, uh, on, the, on the basketball game or the football game or whatever just while we're hanging out. Well, I think it's 18 of 48, 18 of 50 states now that have legalized sports betting. Mississippi's one of them. Yeah, Louisiana's- they were prepared for it like right away. Like Mississippi, when it got put on the ballot, casino started renovating before it was even passed. Like mm-hmm. they knew it was going to pass. Like they had foresight. Louisiana stuck in times and, and always takes a little bit longer for everything. But do you think there's like a negative effect, any negative effect from from the sports gambling being 
not any more than any other casino would be where some people think playing the lottery is a tax on poor people. Gambling can be a negative thing. It can certainly ruin friendships. I've had friendships ruined by gambling, but in moderation, it is so fun. Some of my best memories, I, I put this in my 40, what was it, 40 life lessons to pass on to my 20-year-old self. Like, don't be one of those that is so emotionally intertwined with your gambling <laughs> that you lose friendships over it. It's not worth it, even if it's, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever it is. So as long as you can keep it separate, the emotion separate from your friendship, then by all means, freaking gamble. It, it Putting... $100 on a football game makes the football game that much more exciting. Yeah. No, I mean, putting $10 can be just as fun too. You know, like that's, I mean, some people can do that. They can go, like, hey, let's pick 10 games and, and put like 10, 20 bucks on it to see if we can hit this miracle parlay. And like, that's what you could do now. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the person who has no interest in it can now walk into a place and do that, you know, and, and just kind of have a little extra fun. If, especially like if you're not, if you're not a gambler, so to speak, you know, like, if you have, like, I have no desire to ever put money on any table game out there, you know? And it's just like, like to me, like that's gambling, like poker. Yeah. By the spirit of the word, it is gambling, but like, that's a competition. It's, it's, and it's something that I enjoy doing, you know, it's a game. Yeah. I don't tell the wife I'm going to the casino. I say I'm going to play cards. Yes, exactly. You know? And it's just like, yeah, I mean, call it what it is. And some people can't get over that, but in the end, I mean, the same way that ESPN and Scott Van Pelt can post point spreads at the bottom of the screen. The commentators can, can make subtle comments towards the, the overhitting or, you know, or the team getting the late touchdown for the cover and things like that. I mean, we all know it's out there. I love when Al Michaels does it. Oh, it's perfect. So it's per it was perfect before everybody knew he was doing it because he just did it. For, it was like, Oh, Al just gave us a shot out because we had a little action on that game and it just kind of made it really cool. I think. Yeah, and it's cool that the other guy is a total square. Yeah, yeah, it only works because of that. If they were both big gambling guys, then you know it wouldn't work. But yeah, you can make that comment to where the other guy kind of side eyes you. You know, I'm like, yeah, I think that's what definitely makes the the Al Michaels uh, lines that much better. Well, what negative do you see? <sighs> I mean, honestly, I, just, I I don't I don't think there is one. I mean, in the sense that. I don't think new people are going to go to the casino because it's there. It's just, it's just another service. I mean, that, that's all it is. If you want to call gaming a service, but it's just an, it's another form of entertainment in that way. I mean, if, uh, if anything, then like, you know, I know a big thing was like the daily fantasy stuff. Right. And I mean, I play fantasy football. I don't like super enjoy it that much. I play it because like for my friends and I, like that's our, that's our one time a year. We know Labor Day weekend we're going to get together and we're going to talk shit and I'm going to probably make somebody cry because I just love the draft. Mm -hmm. And, and you take someone and be like, wow, what round is it? The fourth, you know, and it, and it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it, you could take my homes. I'm going to make a comment. Like I'm yeah. going to be chirping there, but I think the daily fantasy could have more of a negative effect in the sense of so many people have done fantasy football and I'm not saying they shouldn't have it. I mean, be an adult, but, but if you talk about negative effect, daily fantasy probably is more likely to, uh, to ruin friendships and, and ruin lives than, uh, than I think sports betting inside of a casino will just because of the fact of you can fire off all day long at, you know, these daily fantasy things where everybody thinks they know so much more than they do. And I mean, fantasy football is no different than betting on horses, you know, except they only have two legs out there, you know, and, and they have no incentive to do any better for you. I mean, at least a horse, you know, they do have an incentive to, to finish first, you know, betting on a sport should be entertainment. I think, I think daily fantasy could be, 
could be bad for some people. I mean, I'll never see it because I don't have any people around me that, that get wrapped up in things like that. You know, I don't think I have any, you know, no friends that are hardcore gamblers because I think if they were, we probably wouldn't really be friends to this day because I'd feel really bad if they were making really bad choices and I'd try to help them out. And they probably wouldn't want to hear it like most addicts. <laughs> I love the trash talking aspect of sports. There are a few people I've had on the podcast recently where we've discussed how when you look around at your coworkers, there's something that separates you from them. And a lot of it has to do with having played sports versus those who haven't. There's a huge difference. And, and one of the minor differences is trash talking. So when you go around the office insulting your, your coworkers, <laughs> if they didn't play sports, they tend to be easily triggered. Yeah. And they don't understand that, hey, I'm, I'm giving you shit because I like you. If I didn't give you shit, then you need to worry. Like, then I probably don't like you. Yeah, if I'm avoiding any type of, you know, interaction with you. Yeah. Then, yeah. Me talking trash is just a way to make extra interaction with you. you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's camaraderie. And we've been doing it our entire lives. It's the old adage, men insult each other, but don't mean it. Women compliment each other, and they don't mean it either. So, yeah, I mean that's that's probably words to live by. You know, if you have well, you have a daughter on the way, and uh, probably some advice that you should pass along to her. And I got a little dude of my own who's <laughs> going to be five. And you want to talk about trash talking? This dude, we were playing basketball in the driveway before before I came here earlier, and he hits a shot, and he just he drops his he leaves the hand up in the air like he's making it <laughs> rain. And then he just struts off, you know, and, and I'm just like, who, where do you learn this from? You know? And then he's just like, I'm the king of the concrete dad. And like, that's nice. what he tells me, you know, because he's obsessed with, with basketball this week, like this week he's obsessed with basketball because we signed him up for the little youth league in, uh, in Hammond and that's it. So he's all in. I mean, he asked, we went to see Santa Claus yesterday on Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. And the first thing he told Santa that he wanted was a Zion jersey. <laughs> like that's it you know he's like i have an ad jersey but i want a zion jersey because ad went to play for the snakers that's what he calls them which i think is just ironic that you know he's trying to say lakers and it's coming out snakers and you know whatever lebron and all those guys yeah they pretty much are snakes <laughs> so uh so yeah he, he's a sports obsessed little dude we played flag football we played soccer i mean anything that we can put him in like he shows an interest to it like we're doing it like you know and and that's one of those things where I have no desire to ever see my kid specialize in something because the chances of him ever being a college athlete are like pretty much not going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's and, like six percent of high school varsity athletes go on to play college sports. Did you specialize, so to speak, whenever you were a kid? Or, I did. Or what but point did you get there to where? Well, I went to a five A high school in Texas where wow. there were only one or two that played both football and baseball. They How many were, kids try out for like the baseball team at a 5A Texas school? Well, these two were major league caliber athletes. So they were quarterback and he did make it to the big leagues. The other one was a quarterback and pitched at TCU and ended up transferring to Texas State. I don't recall how many tried out. Probably... 70 to 80, if I had to guess. So when I was a freshman, we had a freshman team, A and B, a JV team, and a varsity team. So, and that's just ninth through 12th grade. We started with 1,000 freshmen. By the time we graduated, we had 560 kids. 
So you lose a lot. You don't know what the hell happens to <laughs> yeah. these people, but well, that's Texas big city a, living. Yeah, Houston's such a transplant city as well. So, I mean, a lot of those parents get transferred, things like that. I guess that could happen. Yeah. How old is your son? He's going to be five on January 6th. Okay. So from what I can tell, you're an outstanding dad. I enjoy watching your interactions with your kid and, and seeing you coach him and all that. I love that stuff. Did he show a natural inclination for sports? He did. And, and it's, it's so weird. Like, like I, I, I'm so scared to be that dad. Yeah. You know, and, and he, he's naturally athletic. Like he just is like he, his, his gait when he runs is just different. His instinctual moves that he makes whenever he plays soccer or anything like that. Like, it's just all natural. Like, I mean, he, he obsesses over authenticity mm-hmm. as weird as that sounds. And this has been going on since he was like two years old. I and mean, when I say that, meaning that like, Hey Luke, let's play football. Like he wants to play football. He will take out his, I have pictures. Like this is the kind of stuff that like my camera roll is just going to be absurd one day. And it's just going to be funny. Let's play football. He goes and he has to decide who he wants to be, whether it's going to be Alvin, whether it's going to be Drew or, or even Thomas Morstead. Now that was, that was <laughs> you know, so he has a Thomas Morstead Jersey. So he has to decide who he wants to be. He lays out the Jersey. He lays out his pants. He lays out the gloves the wristbands, the shoes, the socks, the helmet, the towel. And then he, he looks at it and he'll stare at it and he'll say, all right, dad, now it's time. <laughs> and then he gets dressed. Go time. And then we have to go into the bathroom and we have to play a song and we have to run out the <laughs> tunnel and he's got to give the Drew speech. And I mean, this is just being, like, I didn't, he, he asked, what do the players do? So I tell him what they do. And, and it's just funny, but he hangs on to it. And like, this is what he does. So we're standing in the bathroom and, and we, he's, pumping me up as though he's Drew and we're going to go out there and we're going to win this game for everybody out there. And then we run out and mom, cheer, mom, cheer, stop. Mom's not cheering. Mom, <laughs> cheer. We go back in the bathroom. We redo it again. So it's fun, man. It's fun. His, his sport, his draw to sports. It makes me happy because, you know, I love sports, but man, I, I take it. I, and I've said this since the first time I'm like, I'm going to enjoy the sports thing. Cause he's, a, he's obsessed with it. Because tomorrow it may be dinosaurs. And then you know what? Then we're, we're playing with T-Rex and he's asking me questions about dinosaurs. And, and I don't care, but I'm going to have to find a way to care. That's really cool. Something I read recently about Spotify that I thought was really interesting is how musicians are compensated and how it affects the art that they produce. So, for example, the Old Town Road song by Nas X right. was like the number one song in the yeah, world. I have a toddler. I know all the words. <laughs> okay, so that song is only like two minutes and some change. Right. And the reason is because of the way that they're compensated per song. And it, it, it did them no good to make a four and a half minute song when they could be compensated twice for the same amount of content. You makes see what sense. I'm saying? Yeah, it yeah, makes sense. It, it, I just love that stuff and how the the shift in compensation took place when they had to start making more money from concerts because shit was being stolen on the internet. All yeah. Their, their... Well, there was one thing that I that I um, I read this where musicians they did a, a few people have done this before where they have like a, you know just a diehard base you know like some of these you know some bands you know they just they do i mean they're if they're not mainstream pop culture you know if they're not taylor swift or bruno mars then it's a little bit harder for them to possibly sell their stuff and so they have to stream like you have to have your music available to stream but what they did was they put out a musical just instrumental album right and they released this instrumental album 
like whatever time. And it was like eight hours long. So basically what they did was they told their fans to go on at this time and just turn it on and go to sleep. (laughs) And so they got all this play from their fans and then sold their album on their website. And so they were just asking their fans to just turn on this instrumental so they can get money. And it was, you know, my God, why not? Like if you could beat the system and you don't really have album sales anymore and you have to be available to, you know, you have to have your music available to stream. I thought that was pretty creative from their standpoint. Inside sales reps, we used to call us phone monkeys where you would be graded according to how much time you spent on the phone. So they had strategies. I mean, incentives do make people very creative. But one of the strategies was if you had a good buddy that worked at a company, you would just call that person and tell them to put the phone next to the keyboard and just continue with your day. (laughs) And they would log an hour and 14 minute calls with whoever, you know, somebody that they had built a relationship with, usually one of their customers. And it's not like the CEO or the VP of sales would go and verify that they were actually having substantive conversations for an hour and 14 minutes. That would never happen. So another one would be they would call a movie theater and just listen over (laughs) and over to what was being played. So yeah, you got to get creative. Why not? I mean, you know, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, if you're the, uh, I guess if you're the owner of the owner of the company, you may, uh, you may not be thrilled about that kind of thing. But at the same time, too, I guess everybody looks for a little bit of a shortcut here and there. You know, you're not, if you do that every day, it's going to catch up with you, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, everybody comes into work a little hungover from time to time. So I guess that may be uh, not a bad strategy for those days. But, yeah, so a uh, question with, with your daughter on the way, right? So mm-hmm. obviously, you know, you and I fall into that older parent category. And then you wait, you're yeah, like four or five years away whenever you go to that pre-K parents orientation thing and then you look around that classroom and you're like wow there's just there's two types of people there the people your age who had kids later and then there's the people who you're like oh wow you graduated high school after i finished college yeah whoops you know and so and so like you have those two types of people but like your whole idea of like the screen time the social media aspect the things like that where you're at a point right now where you do so much that's, I mean, it's public, right? So this podcast is for a reason to consume things you do. Your you man overseas Instagram is for a reason to people to see and consume things that you do. So it's all out there. Like how much exposure will you give your kid to that? That is something that I haven't thought through. I'm basically in information gathering mode right now. I'm reading a book with my wife called brain rules that was recommended by future podcast guest Eddie Romanzo. He's somebody like you that I respect how they're raising their child. So I'm going to be picking you y'all's brains, but we don't know what we're doing. He was just smart enough to put in a book. It's a play by play thing, man. Well, yeah. And, And I think this is a new world with this technology and we're all just kind of figuring it out, but it, it happens so rapidly. The changes that three years from now when she's four, three or two and a half, it is going to become more apparent where our focus needs to be. That's apparent, A-P-P-A-R-E-N-T. So I don't know that it's something that I should focus a lot of my attention on right now because especially by the time, I mean, by by three, I imagine she'll be looking at screens. But as far as social media goes, I, I feel like I still have quite a bit of time to 
to prepare for that, I kind of think the world's going to go the other way. I think we're going to go more analog. I, I, I just think, I mean, you saw the social dilemma. That stuff is, is ruining us. And even the creators of the technology are realizing the harm that it's doing to kids. And so maybe those who are more affluent, there, there's going to be possibly a stigma attached to social media usage. Some people think it's going to get worse. The algorithms are going to get better. We're going to get more hooked. But I also see where the same way that cigarettes were once for the affluent and now they're more for lower status folks. How you're talking about a tax on the poor. That's what a cigarette is. Right. I mean, it really is. Yeah. yeah. But you go to places like Romania, which is next to Belarus, the second poorest country in the EU. It's a status symbol there to smoke. So I could see where at some point it becomes a, a stigmatized, oh, God, you're low class, like you're on social media. I, I don't know, man. I hope you're right. I just don't think that's going to happen. I mean, people are way too consumed with showing their best life kind of thing, which, which isn't, a, isn't a terrible thing. I mean, I'm going to say this. Like the person who only posts the super cool shit that they do on, on Instagram or, or Facebook, which Facebook's such an eye roll. I mean, I spend maybe like – check it like you know once or twice a day and then i'm kind of over it i really just look at pictures and so uh but i just think that like people are so consumed with you know like i said like showing their best life and i'm cool with that because like i'd rather see something that looks like fun rather than hear your opinion or not even hear but but to have to read your opinion or read this meme about whatever it is that you really don't want anyone to to converse with about you just want to show that this is what you think and like it's echo chambers and things like that. And the algorithms, I just don't think people are going to get away from that. I mean, there, there's no reason why, I mean, you saw the social dilemma and if no one, if you haven't seen it, then your algorithm for Netflix is probably one based off of the fact that you don't watch many documentaries and it doesn't pop up other than that first week, whenever it was trending. But I would say anyone just to go watch it, just to enlighten yourself. And I think people are, could easily turn that off and say, Oh, I'm not that person and completely be that person. You know, after, even after watching the, you know, the social dilemma and, and watching that documentary, I just don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, I, I struggle with it, you know, like just in general, like I, I try not to be on my phone at all times and, and having a kid that we don't give the tablet to. And it's not something where like we're grandstanding. My wife and I are saying like, we don't do that. It, it didn't even happen that way. It was, we organically realized that we don't ever give him the tablet. Like he's got like the little Amazon kid friendly tablet where you can set it and it's just games for him. And I mean, he's obsessed with Sonic the Hedgehog right now. Like that's his favorite game, which is awesome for me because I mean, we grew up on Sonic the Hedgehog. Exactly. And so, uh, but he only gets it in the car. That's it. That's the only time he plays the iPad. And like, we'll go to, we'll go to church on Sunday. We live five blocks away from church. He has no concept of time. He just, oh, I get to play it on the way to church. Yeah. I mean, we're. You know, we're two red lights and four stop signs away from being there. And it doesn't matter. Like, that's cool enough for him. And we come inside and sometimes we're like, oh, bring it inside so we can charge it because we're getting ready to go wherever and we're going to be in the car for a while. And he brings it in, he sets it on the counter, and then he goes to just playing. And like, we're like, oh, like he doesn't even enter his head at this point to play the iPad, like to even be on it. And we never put it in front of them, which means that there's, like I said, like there's a good chance that tomorrow morning, like I'm going to be playing basketball in the dining room or mom goes for a run. 
because he's gonna, dad, come play with me. Dad, come play with me. Like that is the most heard words in my house is dad, come play with me. <laughs> and, and I do because uh, I mean, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna pick up my phone. Like, no, 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 let me check Facebook for the 100th time to see if somebody said something that I don't agree with or whatever, you know, it, it just doesn't matter. It's just not that much content that's, that's worth missing out on dad, come play with me to have my phone or just go play your iPad. Uh, I've thought about the, the fact that parents are probably putting rules in place that they're not abiding by themselves. So restricting screen time, not considering that their kid is seeing them on social yes. media all the time. Yes. That is actually one thing too, where I learned this. this. This is when I learned that I needed to check myself on being on the phone is whenever he would look at me, this is started from an early age, whenever he was just like maybe like crawling or, you know, well, he only crawled for like two weeks before he decided it was cool to start walking. And then, but whenever he started being active and around, and he would see me on the phone and he would just stare at me and he would start to walk over and rather than show him what I was looking at, I just put it down. And, and it wasn't so much that I didn't want to show him, but I was just like, ah, he doesn't need to like come. Hey dad, can I see this? Whatever. The only thing he thinks that my phone does is like FaceTime his parent or just look at pictures, you know, of, of himself because he's four and most four year olds are arrogant. So Seeking approval from peers is such a large component of human nature. For that reason, I think you may be right that social media is, isn't going away. Although I haven't thought about her usage, particularly her usage, I've thought about my own. And whether or not it needs to be communicated to my child in the same way that if somebody were to get in my car and get on their phone and not tell me what it is that they're doing, that would be rude. You know what I'm saying? So like if I, I remember picking up a girlfriend from the airport in the past and her getting on her phone on the way back to my house, if she doesn't tell me what she's doing, that's very rude. Yeah. So at what point do you talk to your kid as an adult, as opposed to baby talking your child? If you treat them like a respectable human and say, I am replying to this email from my boss, or I am checking out pictures of your grandma, and you know, Dude, I that's do what from, you would do with someone your age. Do you owe that to your child? Day one, man. Day one. Like that is the way, like, that is the way like I do it with him. Like I do. Like, I mean, like I am a boss. I have employees that work for me. And when they call, I'm like, hey, it's somebody from work. And he's like, oh, so they, they need you, right? Mm -hmm. And he knows that if I say it's somebody from work, they need me. Like, they're not calling to just say hi, or they're not sending me a text just to say hi. And I'll tell him I'm texting someone from work. Like, I would just tell him like that. They just We talk to him in such, I mean, the baby talk stuff is like so far out the way, like mm -hmm. just out of the way. Whenever he grunts and whines, I'll look at him. I'll just stare at him. I'll stare at him and I'll just, are you done? Like, are, are we going to whine now? Like, stop whining. Like, no one like no one thinks that's cool. And he just kind of <laughs> looks at me and he's just like, I'm no whining. I'm like, oh, it sure sounds like you are, you know, and, and just go about the business, you know, from that standpoint. 
And the same thing too, like where we talk about, like we're talking about poker and like these people who sit down at the table and like no one has a personality anymore. Man, that's one thing that like I have stressed from him from like day one. I was always the one who dropped them off at daycare just because of proximity of, of where we lived and worked and everything else. So I always dropped them off and picked them up from daycare. Well, we'd have to walk into the building and we'd have to, you know, tell people good morning, everything else, walk to his classroom. Like I made a point that he would tell Miss Jessica who worked at the front desk, good morning. Like whenever he saw her, whenever we walked through, I'm like, if anybody tells you hi, you tell them hi, you don't walk past them. You know, even to the point where being as a little kid, you know, everybody wants to give a little kid a high five. Luke was always one that reached his hand out to shake hands, you know, because I always just tell him, like, go shake his hand, mm-hmm. you know, like, go shake your uncle's hand, go shake whoever's hand, you know, go shake Mr. So-and-so's hand. Like, and, and that was, so he would walk up and if you don't ask for a high five, he's reaching his hand up to shake his hand. And it's one of those things where, like I said, man, I never set out to do that. Like, I'm not a perfect parent. Like, no one is. Like, we're literally doing this play by play. But then certain things, like, if you're observant, and you can see them do those things, you're like, you know what? That's a good character trait. Like, I want him to keep doing that. So let's like just reinforce that point of it. I like that. You know, and, and so like that's that's basically what I try to do. If I can if I can recognize that he did something that would be something that's gonna make him a better, a better dude, you know, like honestly, like I've always thought about it. I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm I'm raising a dude in a world of wusses right now. You know, like that's kind of what it seems like. And I'm like, I, I don't want him to be that kid. Like when you go somewhere and you know. An adult walks in the room, you stand up, you shake their hand. It was one of those things where like, I don't remember being taught that, but I knew it was the right thing to do from day one. You've told me that something you've noticed is your friends politicizing their kids. What do you mean by that? I mean, this whole election process, like how many times I saw someone that, whether it be, never really any close friends actually, but just people that, you know, you have... 800 friends on Facebook, you know, and, and like 30 of them are people that you actually care about. But like their kid has like a MAGA hat on. And I'm like, that kid doesn't know who Donald Trump is. I mean, obviously they're going to think that he's the greatest human being that ever lived because you're putting that hat on their head. And you know what? Maybe he is, but he's not because like the, we haven't met the greatest human being. Right. And, and when people do that, they, they wave the flag, they you know, identity politics, which is what we've seemed to have like gotten so involved with nowadays, where it's it's not about what you believe, it's about what side you believe. And and people do that. I mean, we saw I saw it so much during, you know, during this whole election cycle of people's kids and them posting what they thought was a cool picture because their kid was like waving a flag, which down here, I, I mean, it's just going to be MAGA. I mean, that's what it's going to be, because that's where we live. You know, but I mean, do have some friends that that live in other places that, you know, we're Biden stuff. And, you know, they're like, we back Biden in this house, you know, and they got their little, you know, they got their eight year old, you know, with with that. And they live in, you know, obviously a more liberal state than than Louisiana. But it just bothers me. I haven't seen any of that. Really? No. Well, lucky you, man. I, I, I tried. I blocked so many people. Election night was it was so awesome. Didn't you tell me one time that you only pay attention to the opposing side's news when i cared about it like a lot more you know i'm not saying that i don't care about it obviously we have you have to be in touch with some type of politics i only watched the other side like i would strictly watch like msnbc uh, being you know meaning that the other side was that i'm more conservative than liberal but i do have probably a lot more liberal viewpoints than what my friends have just in the aspect of, of, of social things, you know, and, and, and seeing a lot more of it and working in an area where there are a lot more minorities. 
I tend to, to have a softer stance on some of those things, but I would only consume that. Just basically, I found that by consuming the other side only, it, it allowed me to at least combat the argument from that side. If they said something and all I would do is hear what, because that's all the, the 24-hour news cycle and, and MSNBC or Fox News. Like if you go to those stations because they back your opinion, you don't get any smarter. You're just piling on more facts to tell the next person of why you're right. And then you just sit there and talk about politics. And you said something because you watched Tucker Carlson one night. And then I said something because I watched him the other night. And we're just high-fiving each other because we're both so smart because we both watched Tucker. You know, but, but if I listen to that other news channel and I, told, I just completely don't agree with him, I'm like, well, that's their opinion on this. Why, why do I disagree with it so much? Could there be some value in that side of it? And a lot of times I would, I would find something that they were arguing on that side. And it was like, you know what, that that's kind of a good thing. That's something that maybe like I should take for myself to present that other viewpoint that made me think, let me throw it at them, see if they have an opinion and it may be complete. They may have perceived it completely different. I'm just giving them what I saw. And then we go from there and then you can like, Get smarter, maybe? I don't know. Instead of just kind of listening to what you want to hear? People think that they're smart enough already, <laughs> is yeah. what I find. This is a new phenomenon that people aren't even considering how they use it, how often they use it, whether or not it's productive to use it, whether or not it's a net positive or negative for their lives, for their kids' lives. I just had a, a university head coach on this podcast recently and asked him if he uses social media to assess the character of players that he's recruiting. And he said, yeah, and I'll look at the parents' social media yeah. too. There you go. And I was like, That's whoa, I thing. had never considered that. It makes so much more sense too. Of course. And he said, and the social media doesn't lie. No. And that's so true. If you, if you go onto Facebook and see a parent that's arguing about politics or complaining that their kid's coach didn't leave him in in the seventh inning i mean why would you want that kid in your program because human nature dictates that if that person did that they're going to do it again so no 100 percent. i i i couldn't agree with that more and it makes complete sense man if, if you've ever been in a position at work where you have to hire somebody i mean the you have to check out their their facebook you have to check out their instagram like you have to find out to. that information i mean like i remember listening to uh to, to mike golick right he was on mike and mike on espn and i remember him telling his kids who he had what two sons that played college football and a daughter who was a, a college swimmer right so all of his kids played collegiate sports he was a professional athlete played defensive line for the philadelphia eagles and i remember him telling his kids because they were in the spotlight because of who their dad was and then also because they were going to high-profile universities in Notre Dame. And he said, the internet and social media is your bedroom. It's not your front yard. You're letting people into it a lot more than what you realize. So are you going to – what are you going to present people? So you're letting them in. Do you want – you can make it your front yard, but so many people get so comfortable probably because of that percentage graph of how much time we spend on social media – that you consume it enough, you get really comfortable, and then you just start letting things fly a lot more than what you probably should. It's a good point, especially with the advent of COVID and lockdowns, yeah. and it's made real life almost secondary. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it makes 
it also it also made this this appeal of of the the opinions of of COVID, right? So so you're saying like this it made like this secondary life where social media became the only thing we could do. Like we could only share like how are you killing time today, basically, you know? And like that's what it was. And and we had I mean, to this day, like I we have a little quarantine family group chat, a group text message, and it's with my employee and his his girlfriend who luckily bought a house a block away from us and they had a swimming pool. And so we spent, we spent Easter with them. We had our Saturday morning runs where we would all go on a group run and, and Luke would come out there and we'd push him. He'd hop in and out the stroller and, you know, we'd go run four or five miles and then we'd come back and I boiled more crawfish this past year than, than I'd ever done before. But it was just like, yeah, I mean, that was it. And so what we do, I would take a picture we'd posted on, on social media and you know, we posted on Instagram, but it was like, yeah, like that was almost the only way to communicate, you know, at that time was, was just doing it through social media. Yeah. It's, it's almost hard to imagine doing something nowadays and not getting a picture of it. Right. That's where we are. So you feel, and and sometimes you feel cheated. And I will say this too, though, like, so the pictures thing, like you're about to have this kid and I know any parent out there listening, man, it, you have like so many pictures before the kid is mobile. (laughs) And then once the kid gets mobile, the pictures start to go down. And then even to the point where on Thanksgiving day, our only picture was from the Turkey trot race that we went and do. And then Carolyn's like, great, another holiday down where our only family picture is like not really a family picture. And so, you know, like that starts to happen, you know, and yeah. And people put their profile pic as their kid and not them. Yeah. Right. So, but yeah, the, the, the social media, the, the exposure that, that we have to the, the people just putting so much more out there, you know, with their kids and, you know, this all started from like politicizing, you know, your own child and, and people do it. And you're, I'm, I'm glad you didn't see it because whenever I saw it, I'm like, oh, this is just gross. Mm. You know, kids don't care. I mean, I don't make it past four or five posts on Facebook anymore. It, it just isn't good. Maybe since it's not chronological anymore and they just show you more ads than they used to, I, I don't get very far. It's just never interesting to me. If I want to see my best friend's stuff, I usually will visit their page. But even like if my mom posts something, my wife usually has to tell me and then I'll go to her page and check it out. You know, traveling around the world, I've watched people arrive at the most beautiful scenery in the world, walk a hundred steps up to this beautiful lookout with their head down at their phone so they can make sure that they find the lookout and then never even look at the scenery, they turn the phone towards themselves and then see the scenery in the selfie of themselves and then snap to be conservative 150 selfies <laughs> and then put the phone back in their back pocket and then walk back to the car. Like, like they've it. never even taken in the scene. It's all for show on social media. And there are entire islands. So I think of some of these bigger islands like Bali or Koh Samui or Phuket. Koh Samui and and Phuket are in Thailand. Bali is obviously Indonesia. But they have, I think of it like the big city of Houston in New Orleans. And then they have suburbs. So Koh Tao and PP would be like the woodlands and Metairie. And so you go to the main island and then you travel, you take a boat or ferry to some of these smaller islands. Some of these smaller, lesser known islands 
are developed. Uh, I'm sorry, are developing because prior to Instagram, they had almost no visitors. But they'll have four or five spots that are lookouts or or secluded beaches that are no longer secluded. But they don't have places to stay yet. They've just become popular in the last five or six years as people go there and post on Instagram about them. And so it's fascinating to witness. Even Alberta, Canada is this way. It used to be if you went to Lake Louise or especially some of the the lesser known lakes, you'd go out there and there'd be four or five people out there maybe. Now – they have to they shut them down for the day because they're overcrowded and there have even been islands in the philippines like boracay which is an island that my wife and i visited in january of 2016 they've shut the whole island down because so many people come and leave so much trash wow so instagram is changing the world in in ways that people aren't even aware of and it's just so fascinating to witness because People go there not to enjoy it. They just go there so that they can put their picture on Instagram. So you think it's all bad that they do that? or I, I think it just contributes to this, this l- diminishing aspect of what is fulfilling for people and enriches their life, which is connection to other humans. So if I meet someone... I can tell if they're the type that goes to the destination and does that sort of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. I can tell by their lack of communication skills, their lack of eye contact. You, yeah, like what's, what's their MO? Like that's basically yeah, – like you, how they live of, their life. I guess, okay, so let's like try to find like the good thing about it, right? So these, these places that you named that had no traction, no tourists, no nothing mm-hmm. – I mean, at least Instagram has brought these small places some type of wealth. Like, I mean, it, it brought some trash, you know, obviously. It's a good point. And, and so at least it's brought some wealth to these places, bought some exposure. I, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, hell, hopefully maybe the next great heart surgeon will come from one of these places because now they, you know, have enough money to go to school or something. It's one of the reasons I advocate for visiting places like Prague and Vienna and Budapest. These are all places when they were behind the Iron Curtain, you couldn't visit them. So when our parents were our age, you couldn't go to these places, but they still have some of the old world communist era attitudes and buildings and culture. And it's so cool because it's going to be gone soon as the world becomes westernized, which is what I'm afraid is going to happen. It's what's happened already, but I'm afraid it's going to get worse as other countries adapt our Western ways, which is, which tends to be what happens because not value history. (laughs) Yeah. It's like when the communist ruler of Romania, I can't pronounce his name. Nicholas starts with a C nailed it when he, he in the late eighties allowed Romanians to watch Dallas. (laughs) It was the first time that he had allowed them to see what was going on in the outer world. And he thought that it would lift their spirits. Well, what it did was enabled them to see how materially wealthy the rest of the world was, and it led to his ultimate downfall. And so that what's happening in these other parts of the world, in Asia and Eastern Europe, at, because of the internet, it enables them to see what everybody else is doing, how wealthy they are or whatever, and they want to mimic those same ways of 
conspicuous consumption and things like that. And so the reason I'm such an advocate for getting there now is because especially with mass migration and hyperconsumption, the whole world is probably eventually going to look like America. And so there's going to be no unique culture to visit because we'll all be one world order, <laughs> one world culture. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Like definitely not saying that I think that's wrong, but at the same time too, like there's still people that value tradition. There's still like, for instance here, right? So in the United States, it's a young country. There's very little like coast to coast culture, right? This city, New Orleans is one of the very few places with a true sense of culture. You know, it's got old buildings. They have the the historical society that protects. You can't put up certain signs on some of these buildings and things like that. There's always going to be those people there. I think it's going to take a lot longer for them to get rid of. I think historians will, will fight to protect it. And also too, with as much, politicians, like we said earlier, kind of say things to get people on their side. Every country has politicians. So there's going to be some politicians that's going to be an opportunist and they're going to make that statement that we need to preserve this building and it's going to be a rallying cry for something. And then people will rally around it, that person's idea, and then it may save something. So it, it, it may not happen, I think, as, as quickly as what you're saying. I just think that like you're going to have a, resist, a resistance from from the people in that area that want to preserve their way of life. I don't think it's going to happen fast, it, you know, westernizing them possibly, but nowhere near the, the rate at which the United States went from being a new country to what it is now. I think the rate of change has accelerated so but rapidly, it's got to, but it's got to, I mean, think about it. We walk around with our internet. Yeah. We walk around with a computer in our pocket. Yes. You know, and I mean this, this, thing that we get mad at because it doesn't load something fast enough because you know the signal's weak and we're like ah, when you put it in perspective you're like i sound like an ass you know so I, so it just depends on how strong people or how hard people are willing to work to preserve what you're talking about because when you when you get people who want to shut down the other side if 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 your claim to be racist for wanting to preserve any sort of tradition that your country has, people are going to be afraid to speak up. And so I think you're going to see a faster acceleration of change. And so, so my woke, opinion woke culture is going <laughs> to be the thing that moves it or, or not necessarily woke culture. It's just going to be uh well, it, it could be woke culture if those who oppose woke, woke culture are branded racist and people are afraid of being branded a racist. And so you'll just have one world or one party. One, you, don't, you won't have anybody who opposes it, right? We, you and I have talked about the fact that when there was negative, a negative story that came out that could have reflected poorly on Joe Biden – you and I couldn't even send that article to each other, which would be the 25 years ago equivalent of the mailman not allowing the letter that you sent me to be delivered because it, because what you had written was negative about Bob Dole. Yeah. It's, yeah. That, that, that part blows my mind. Like, you know, like the whole, you know, to, to get into some types of politics where you're talking about that that whole we couldn't share that because Twitter banned it. You know they, they deemed it not necessary or you know wh whatever it is because Twitter can do what they want to do. If there's one thing that like I really wish that that Trump would do before he left office was to 
go after like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube for the censorship thing. I mean, censorship is just, it's such a weird thing that we see so much of in our culture where it was for the longest time, it, it actually was the liberal side that fought against censorship. And like, that's completely flipped. It's completely flipped to where the, the fight for freedom of speech has become a conservative point of view, which is just, it's, it's crazy to think that people would want to be censored and the fact that they can regulate and they can shadow ban, and, and if no one's familiar with shadow banning, basically what that means is if some person is a, is a huge influence on social media, they shadow ban that person by removing them from the algorithm, which means that they're not going to pop up as much. The, the things that they say, whether it be a tweet, an Instagram post, whatever it may be, those things are going to start to go down. And they're not going to get as many clicks and people will go from, and, and the only way to really know is like some of these, you know, some people where they may, you know, some high influencing people may get 20,000, a uh, hundred thousand interactions on something. And then that number drops to like 20% of what they were getting. And then that's effectively is, is a shadow ban where you don't even realize it, but the internet is, or the, the powers that be of the internet are, are slowly removing your voice from it. And, and that thing keeps one weird thing, right? So, so this, this has happened on my Facebook where I was just, it was the, the Willy Wonka meme and it popped up and, and it said something about, um, today's election day. So don't forget if you post about, if you post that you voted on Instagram and Facebook, your vote counts for two. And I just thought it was kind of funny because everybody had to let everybody know that they voted like, cool, mm -hmm. man, you voted like we all did. It keeps popping up on mine. Like, Hey, this story that you shared on November 3rd. It, it is the only thing that Facebook has ever told me, would you like to reshare this thing? Oh, wow. And it, it, it's so crazy. And that's it. Like, that is like the extent of my political post right there. Other than like, I used to always just kind of like put stuff where I'd be like, thanks, Obama, because it was just like something dumb that, that he had nothing to do with. You know, it'd be like the, the Saints blew a fourth quarter lead. Thanks, Obama. You know, and like that kind of became it. But I mean, that was the extent of my political post. But that meme right there, Facebook continues to let me know that I should repost that as a story. I wasn't allowed to advertise on Instagram or Facebook for the month leading up to the election. Really? Yeah. And I appealed three times and they wouldn't get back to me. They finally got back to me. I think it was the day before the election. Maybe it was the day after the election. I don't know. But this is all part of the experiment that is happening so fast. You, you, you said that things are the, the pace of change is not that fast. I see it moving incredibly fast. We have so many people now that predicted that this sort of thing would happen as a result of the wokeness that was taking place in our universities. People thought, well, it's just confined to the universities. It'll never come out in the real world. Well, when you have, we have people that now believe that it's okay to protest systemic racism, but not okay if you support another position. Like you're a super spreader if you go and organize a group for this cause, but not this, and then justifying it scientifically. And we don't, we have much of our population that doesn't bat an eye or think that that's weird or crazy. So basically, like, it's uh, if it supports your cause, then then they see they they it appears to be that like it's okay, right? Well, so like that, people that's kind think of people think their opinions are truth. Like, if you could go back in time 
and prevent Adolf Hitler from being reelected, would you not do that? And that's how people feel. They, a lot of our country thinks it's okay to do whatever it takes. To, if you have to shut people down, if you have to prevent you and I from communicating or sharing an article with each other on Facebook, then you would do that. You would, you would wipe that person off the internet before you allowed Hitler to be reelected. That is how people truly feel. And that is what a lot of people like Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, what people like him predicted would be the result of our wokeness in universities where they wouldn't even allow somebody who had an opposing view to come and speak at the school. I worked for a technology company in late 2000s, early 2010s, and one day somebody sent me, a friend sent me an article that Ann Coulter had written, mm -hmm. and I read that article and found the next day that that site was blocked. And I'm like, whoa, this feels very 1930s Germany. Well, there are a lot of things that happen right now that feel 1930s Germany, but nobody's really saying anything because if they support the cause, then they have truth on their side. Yeah, I mean, one thing that like the whole 1930s Germany thing, and this freaked me out from like day one, was whenever the the gatherings, right? So like, you know, follow the science unless it doesn't support your opinion kind of thing. And then the uh, report your neighbor's for gatherings and that's i'm like going on right now yeah like the you know the jews are downstairs i mean like that's like that's that's basically what that what that what's that equivalent to and gavin newsom so weird got caught at a restaurant said he was outside the pictures showed he wasn't outside he wasn't wearing a mask oh that was that the party at at the uh the french laundry yeah. in wine country napa yeah. valley california he had been advocating for taking your mask off just to take a bite of your and food. Replacing it. Yeah, and then he showed up at a, at a fancy restaurant. I mean, that is Animal Farm all over again. But people, people aren't familiar with Animal Farm, young people especially. They don't know that some of us are more equal than others or where that comes from. People aren't reading anymore. They do have uh, so the curfew thing that's going on right now in California. So California, you know, he, ten to five. Yeah. So I have a, um, a friend of mine who is uh, he's a, he's a professional poker player. He lives down in California, and he is a he, he's a troll by nature. Uh, but but he's also you know he's funny. But he's he's a big MAGA guy, right? And being a big MAGA guy in in California, just it doesn't play well. So he loves that aspect of it. I mean, even to the point where like his like he's got like a, a profile picture of him sitting courtside at the Lakers game. With, uh, with his MAGA hat on. So, you know, it's just like being, you know, cheering for LeBron while you have a MAGA hat. It's kind of funny in itself. Mm -hmm. But uh, but he was posting. Right now, they are doing, they are having anti-curfew um, anti protests going on right now. And, like, he's posted quite a few stories and pictures, you know, of, of people doing that. And that's actually one thing that I haven't really seen being covered at all. They're just, they seem to be kind of ignoring. But, no, they are having anti-curfew protests right now going on in California. So, I mean, people are trying to make a stand for it. Uh, but I, it's I don't not know. being covered. No, it's not being covered. Of course, you know, not. you know, it's you know, and State I told you that before. Wouldn't cover that. I'm like, man, I'm like, I don't want to be tinfoil on my hat guy, but damn, man, they're giving me a lot of reasons to be that way. And and you told me you're like, well, there's nothing wrong with like believing in conspiracies, you know, and and 
there's a reason it's, it's a thought process, you know, and then that's basically what you said, you know, like, well, they want you to believe that you are a tinfoil. They want you to think that about yourself. We are doing this, this social thing where we are just, it's so easy to criticize, you know, and like the, uh, with the whole woke culture. And if, if you're not on the side of that, then you're disconnected. And like, how do you tell me I'm disconnected when you're telling me that reporting your neighbor and making lists is a good thing? Like, why, why is that a good thing? And then you have because you've been convinced that you're keeping Hitler from being reelected. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that I guess that's what it is. I mean, it's just well, that's why the guy on the social dilemma believed that we were headed towards civil war, because if you get your information in a silo, then you're only being fed in your feed, ironically, Mm -hmm. what you already believe. You never are exposed to the opposing view because it's so triggering. Right. That's what they were taught in college. Yes. They had trigger warnings and and micro microaggressions. Yes. All of that. So. Now that we're adults and you're getting your news, you're 31 years old and you're getting only news that supports what you already believe, you're also believing what they tell you about the other side. So if you're told the other side is Hitler, you're justified in doing just about anything. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that, that's it. You, you need to be on the opposition of Hitler. And so if, if reelecting was, uh, was, was bringing Hitler back, then you should be opposed to it. I mean, and, and you have... So few people that are willing to to step out, like so few people on a grand scale, because it's so easy to be the it's to be grandstanding and virtue signaling and all that stuff. It's so easy to be on that side. There's no risk, you know. That's what um I, I was listening to something and they were talking about like corporate America and how corporate America they operate with s- such skill and precision that people don't even realize it, meaning that. Of course, no one wants to be taxed at like this outrageous rate, right? It doesn't matter. Like you, you, you make your money because you want to make your money and support yourself and your family and be wealthy. And, and it's a way to keep track of the score in life by gaining wealth. Like that's what people have done for years. And with corporate America, they have realized that posting that black square, um, just anything like that is so beneficial for them. All they have to do is just so sh- show support. And it automatically puts them on the side of of the good side, of the right side that people believe they're on. Meanwhile, the consumer who opposes that is still going to consume their product, but it allows them to save face. It allows them to do what everyone is expecting them to do. I mean, throughout the entire, like once all this stuff started, like, you know, back after, the, you know, the George Floyd incident and everything else, which was horrific. And, and it's almost one of those things, too, where it's like every time someone mentions it, they have to say it was horrific. Well, of course it was horrific. A man died in front of everybody on film. I, th- I think more than 99% of the country agreed. From there, you have to figure out, if you're in politics, how you can divide and conquer. So, meaning divide by using that as the leverage? Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. How can we use this to our advantage? You know, and, and that was it. And it, became, it becomes really easy for, for a lot of the, the big corporations to use that to their advantage by making a simple post, by putting a hashtag at the end of their commercial, you know, by did you, you know, did you do this hashtag, whatever. And it doesn't matter. I mean, hashtag activism is the ultimate nowadays. I mean, like that is, that is the worst. Like that is the most eye roll thing I could possibly see every time I see it, whenever I hear a celebrity or an athlete or something like that, I, I just, I eye roll when I hear hashtag activism and it, it's brutal. It's just such a, it's such a crappy part that of our society that we have to, like, we have to be a witness to it. 
Like you can't, you can't get away from any type of those hashtag activism things, you know, especially even in the sports world. Right. So like, I mean, I love sports so much more than I love politics at this point in my life because, you know, I can turn something on and I can consume it and it's fun and I can cheer and I can, Oh man, whatever, put $5 on the game, whatever it may be. And then you have to hear the political posts by the player, which they're entitled to do. They're using their platform. Like I'm not anti players, you know, speaking their mind, like why not? You know, but one thing that I, I've said this from the start and in so many conversations that like my wife and I have had, where we just kind of talk about the athletes and everything else and what they say, I'm like, man, you did this thing where you said, you know, like, um, 20 things that you would have told your 20 year old self. Right. Well, whenever you were 24, 25 years old, like you were nowhere near as smart as what you are now. Like you can probably call yourself dumb because you're talking about yourself. Well, why do we put so much stock and what like a 25 year old athlete says, and we want to like deprive ourselves of something that we actually enjoy. Like so many people I know, are like I'm not watching the NFL. I'm not, I'm like, why? Because of what they're doing, what the players are doing. I'm like, so let me get this straight. You enjoy watching it. You enjoy consuming it. It is something that brings you joy to do. You do it with your friends, you do it with your family, you do it with your kids, whatever. You watch the sport. But because some 25 year old who you already consider to be dumb because they're 25 and whenever you were 25, you did dumb things. You're going to allow them to dictate your happiness? Like, they're that important to you? Like, that's where you're going to draw the line at? Like, that's where you're going to make your stand on depriving yourself of something you enjoy that will have no effect? Like, maybe stop buying from foreign-made companies or something like that. Like, that might have a bigger impact in the long run than depriving yourself of watching a sport that 25-year-olds spoke out against. I think you're thinking three levels deeper than what most people do. (sighs) That, I mean, really? Yeah, and I think it ties into the surface level awareness that people have and it ties into people not reading which means not thinking and reflecting and being easily triggered that's a surface level reaction like everything is just a film on top of the lake like it's just this tiny little facade that can so easily be disrupted if i'm thinking that much deeper than the common person then man maybe we are in bad shape shit (laughs) so i mean because i I don't consider myself to think that deep like drew i mean he's he's a hero i mean we love drew he brought a super bowl to the saints like that's so awesome and then he catches all of this crap for what he did and like that was one thing where like you're i've never talked to you about that like your gut opinion of what drew said like i'd love to hear before i tell you what i think that whole I'm not, I don't remember exactly what he said. I just remember thinking that he caved. Like he he doesn't have he's not as principled as I suspected he was if he caved, but I don't remember what exactly yeah. he caved on. So basically he was doing an interview that had nothing to do with with anything that was going on, I, I think it might have been financial type thing with like in, in he Yahoo was, Finance. I think you're I right. I think that might have been what it was, right? And then he was asked like a throwaway question at the end of the thing. And I think that Drew got caught up in a really crappy moment because he wasn't prepared for it. And he is obviously someone that is made his living off of being extremely prepared. Yeah, right? that's a good point. Extremely detail oriented. Mm-hmm. He is not, I mean, his. Even his adjustments at the line of scrimmage are not made on the fly. They're made because he sees something that they're trying to accomplish. Such a great point. And so Drew in 2016, um, right? That was like the, the big kneeling 
thing with, with the NFL, kneeling for the anthem and, and the Kaepernick and all that stuff, right? Because that was during an election year. And he spoke out against it. And he was applauded. Like, he nailed it. Everybody was like, Drew's a great American. And you know what? Like, his opinion at the time, it was very easy to get behind. And it, it didn't really matter. And, and he was applauded for it. And he did it. And he was a leader. And no one criticized him for it. Now, just like we live in an echo chamber on our social media, Drew is still a professional athlete that lives in an echo chamber of the people that he's surrounded with. He's a leader. He's somebody that they look up to. Like, he is going to provide things for them, they, he, emotional support and everything else. He's not going to have negative people around him because there's no real reason to have negative people around him. So based off of that 2016 response of the way he reacted to the kneeling of the national anthem, he pulled that back out for that moment. And he gave an answer, and I guarantee you when he hung up or, or, or stopped that call, he's like, shit, I nailed it again. And he didn't. Mm. And he just didn't. And, like, that's the way I see it. I think Drew just got caught up in the moment where the same thing he said four years ago was, was respected and well-liked. And this thing right here, he just went back to that same thing. And, you know, saying he missed it or he was off, it doesn't matter. The perception of that comment four years later, it just didn't age. Well, I think you may have contradicted yourself there because it speaks to how rapidly things change. Because yeah. those yeah. kids were probably in college in 2016 and in 2020 were professionals. And things change, but at the, the same time, too, Drew is also a 40 year old white guy. Yeah. With a family. Yeah. And he's trying to connect to 25 year old black guys for the most part That's that are point. his teammates. And they're not going to have a lot in common outside of being on the field. You know, they're, they're just not. They're yeah. different points in their life. Even if they, I mean, even if they're white, it doesn't matter. You well, know, the age. It, it also speaks to why your words matter so much in this culture versus your deeds, which is ridiculous. And that's the surface level that I'm talking about, where if, why, why do people think that they're virtuous for their opinions versus how they act in their lives. The, the deeper component is, is how you act out in the world, not putting a black square on Instagram or claiming that you're for equality. It doesn't matter if, if you don't act in a way that promotes this idea you claim to have that we should be more equitable your opinion does not matter. We we should, as a society, espouse the views that are. The I I think it's the silent majority, but I could be wrong because you never get an accurate count. But I think more people believe in what I'm saying, which is. What you say doesn't matter if you don't act in accordance with what you're saying. So we can't get so far removed from character mattering just because Trump is in office or, or whatever that, that people use that as an excuse to behave in these outlandish ways. But as long as I say, Hey, I'm, I'm a, I'm in favor of, of BLM. Oh, well then you're cool. You're yeah. cool, bro. It's just so ridiculous. And, and I think that people foreshadowed this, they saw it coming and they, they tried to tell us, but we were just like, oh, no, it's just, it's just confined to the universities. We'll be fine. But then we saw it play out in the world where you had 
actually what I thought was going to happen two days before the election. I thought they were going to find some tape of of a person, a black person being killed by a white person. I really thought that. Yeah, I mean, it would have been par for the course for the most part with with the way things are going. You know, just we were all on the same side. We all thought that that was ridiculous. That guy getting killed, we couldn't believe it. Yeah, and it, then it, it was it was hard to watch. I mean, it was it was extremely hard to watch. It was it was tragic. It was it was also a time where. Like I said, like I'm, I'm in a place where I, 85% of the people I deal with on a daily basis are minorities. And you know, like it, it was weird. It, it was weird in the sense that like everyone just, it just felt weird, man. And why and I know can't we put on a list those who exploited that instance? Right. Yeah, why can't we all come together for that? Hey, who tried to exploit this for political gain? Let's go after those motherfuckers and put them on a list. So, no, I mean, that would be, that would be really nice. I mean, if, if lists were going to start there, that would probably right? be a spot to start list with. You know, no, I agree. I agree. That was definitely I also a, think so much of what we're going through right now is blurry because it's so upfront and close to, a, to our lives right now. I think 38 years from now, we're going to look back and it's going to be crystal clear how this started in China. We had, for the first time, a president who talked shit to China. We had a candidate who was not able to campaign. We had a failed impeachment. I, I don't know how political I want to get because I don't, I, I don't know. I just fucking. <laughs> no, no, no. I hear you, man. I mean, my, my you know, the, the political stuff, it, it's, it's such a, it could be such a depressing topic, you know, at times because like you just, you just want people to be good. You know, ultimately that's it. You want people to be happy. You want the world to go about its business. You don't want to see like the demise of a culture you want to high five people? I mean, we want to be out in public. We don't want this virus to be politicized. It's already there. I mean, it's just like so many things that just make it really easy to say, fuck it, I give up. I think, too, what's been proven in these last few years is that it doesn't matter how much a rising tide lifts all boats. It doesn't matter that you have the highest standard of living in the world. None of that means that people won't find things to complain about. Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, people complained before there was social media. So I mean, it, it was just no different. It was done at the barbershop. It was done at the hair salon. It was, it was done in those places right there. It was done at, you know, wherever you It was done at church, I'm sure. You know, like those were gathering places for people. Complaining isn't going to go away. I mean, it's a pastime for people. Complaining, gossiping, passing the buck. I mean, those are just all things that are just pastimes for people. They'll never go away. It's just done on a broader scale. Yeah. I remember Tristan Harris in The show, Social Dilemma saying that, Humans as a species evolved to care what people think, but not care what 10,000 people think. And that's why this is this new experiment is overwhelming to us. We don't know how to handle it, where we have access to 10,000 people's thoughts. Or you put something out on Twitter or say something on a podcast, and then the next thing you know, you have 13 people on Twitter coming after you, and it feels like a gigantic mob. Yeah. And then you have to worry about being able to put food on your table because these people in pursuit of equity or whatever they claim to espouse, they don't want you to have a job. They, yeah, it's the, I mean, the cancel culture to no other is, it's scary. Would it's they scary. want you dead? So w Would they object to you being put to death? Let's hope so. so but yeah. they certainly don't want you to make a living. No, no, the the cancel culture is is just insane. Like I, I like I'm a big stand up comic fan. Like I love stand up comedy, and you're just like so many stand up comics get canceled because of a joke that they make, and they're just like, but like 
the musicians don't get crap for the stuff that they say in a song, but like my joke that like it's like Patrice O'Neill, right? Like he died way too soon. He was awesome. Like he's one of the best comics there ever was. And you know, like a couple things he said. I never met a racist. You know, this black guy. And it's true. It's like yeah, because racist people don't like introduce themselves. Say hey, I'm Steve. I'm racist. You know. I saw him at the Improv in Houston. He was awesome. He got in a fight with a guy in the crowd. Over politics, actually. He was talking about Obama and how he deserved to be in office. I mean, let us have the first black guy or something. And, and there was a white dude in the crowd that went after him. Like, he's a liar. Yeah. This whole lying thing just boggles my mind. Like, we've always had people who lie, but that's another thing where people are easily triggered and we don't remember history and all that. But I, I hate the uh, the fact that we call people liars nowadays. It's just You never want to call a liar a liar. I hate it. Uh, liar, liar, and there's so much projection. I, I truly think the people who call people racist usually are the racist ones. Oh well, yeah, you know that's the thing. Like you, you never met one, and you don't get to decide if you are one. Mm. You know, like like I like that. That's that's one thing. Like you don't. I mean, it's it's what people decide that they want to they want to put on you. Yeah. You know, and and you kind of got to live with it too. Like you, you can't really shake it. Yeah. Because because uh, once it's out, they already realize that the retraction does not count. Right, on and there's media. there's nothing you can do to disprove it right like this um you put a black this square, conservative right? yeah this conservative supreme court justice adopted two kids two black kids and then she was accused of being racist because that's what they did in the colonial times <laughs> it's like whoa you're, you're not you're reaching win yeah here. That, that, that's a serious reach right there yeah but yeah the two sides are moving further apart let's hope we don't head toward a civil war but it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle, right? Facebook has shareholders, and those shareholders want quarter-over-quarter quarter growth. So if you can't beat them, try to get a job there or buy <laughs> shares of their company. I don't know. So, which pretty much happens, right? Yes. All right, you want to do some fun questions? Sure. Social media, net positive or net negative for society on net balance? I don't know. We'll talk about that next time. <laughs> right. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's uh, I'm going to go with positive because that's the way I try to consume it. And that's exactly the right answer because it depends on how you use it. The smart folks that use it well will get smarter and wiser and wealthier. And those who don't use it well, unfortunately, will get dumber and poorer and more miserable. And let's hope that COVID doesn't lead to more anxiety, depression, suicide. We don't know the long-term effects of all these lockdowns yet, but interesting times. Do you think not wanting something is just as good as having it? Not wanting something is just as good as having it? No, absolutely not. No. I mean, the, the want, the wants, the fun part a lot of times. So no. Like, the desire? Yeah. So, I mean, that's... You're not in a state of... of you're not you're not envious of it you're not selling your soul for it but like wanting something yeah like i mean that's that's fun i mean it's it's a goal you know like i see it like wanting something doesn't necessarily mean that you're envious just be one i mean i want to be 20 pounds lighter but if you didn't want it would that be the same as as having it would it be just as good no 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 because because the desire for want will create other things i think like meaning that like the fact that i want it my journey to try to achieve it will create something that's memorable. If I never had it and I have no desire to, to seek it, then 
I don't have any chance to grow. Like, so I need something that I want in order to, to grow and create a memory, if anything. I think the, op- the operative word there being growth. I like that. Do you think Jeffrey Tubin should have been fired? No. I don't think anybody should be fired, really. Like, I'm, I'm, over, <laughs> really? I'm, over, I'm over people being fired. I'm over people being called dumb. I'm over people being called... <laughs> I'm just... I'm, I'm over it all. Well, I think you, you know, may I be mean, going too but, far there, but... No, I mean, the Jeffrey Tubin thing, yeah, of course. Like, I mean, that's it, it, just a lack of discipline, right? Like, I mean, that's... <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, like, all of those crazy things that happen, like, the name always matches, like, the story. Like, I mean, Tubin. Like, I mean, like... <laughs> Which makes you believe we're in a simulation. Yeah, there you go, man. Like, we're... Th- that's it. We'll, we'll get our tinfoil hats. We'll walk around. We'll play Sims. And then the Godzilla will come a little bit later. But, yeah, I mean, like, his last name's Tubin, and he got caught doing that. Like, yeah, he should lose his job. I mean, what an idiot. He should lose... He should have lost his job for something else, because there's no way that was the first dumb thing he's done. There was a hashtag going around Twitter, me Tubin. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, uh, of course. So, yeah, that was... Yeah, that was just that's a bad look. If you were stuck on an island and could only eat pizza from one sign me up pizza shop oh. for the rest of your life, which would you choose? Oh man, I'm from home. It's West Main Pizza. So I mean, although I'd probably have to have enough money to own an island to have pizza from there every day. Give me a second one. Uh, give me Tommy's Pizza in Hammond, Louisiana. Right <laughs> I was down hoping street. you would say something that yeah. people in other states could relate to. But no, fair man, enough. No, if no. You, what, if Sabaro? <laughs> I mean, shit. I mean, well, no, I'm no. a Papa John's guy. We no, that's we so always gross. request the uh, pepperonis go your politics underneath <laughs> the cheese. Yeah. So, no, no, man, no, never, never a chain, never. Has anyone ever unfriended you because of politics? I don't know. No, I, the answer has to be no, because I don't post about it. So the answer is 100 percent no. I couldn't tell you if anybody's on front of me, period, but definitely not because of politics. If you could organize a dinner party of six guests and have either everyone you've ever hurt or everyone who has ever hurt you, which would you choose? I would probably say everyone I've ever hurt. I mean, with at the risk of sounding like cliche and douchey, I mean, write the ship. Why not? I mean, I can guarantee you that whatever someone of would have done to hurt me, there's a pretty good chance that I'm over it by now. So I'd be willing to think that most people in that six are going to probably be over it. So let me just, you know, sew it up, be done with it, walk away and either be friends again or just know that, hey, man, I was an ass back then. Let's move on. This was a totally different question just one short year ago, but I try to ask everyone from Louisiana this. I've gotten away from it because of recent developments, but who do you think would win a governor's race between Drew Brees and Ed Ogeron? No, oh, it's definitely Ed. And there's no doubt, right? He's the most relatable. I mean, you can remove the, you can remove the national championship and you can, re, you can take away 2020 altogether. LSU choked it away and they didn't win the national championship and Drew never said anything on Yahoo Finance. Ed Ogeron walks away with it every day of the week just because he's Coach O. <laughs> What is the best stadium you've been to, either football or baseball? So I have been, I mean, the Superdome, I mean, my list of NFL experiences is only like five stadiums or so, but I don't know of a place that could be more electric than the Superdome Mm -hmm. in a primetime setting or, you know, a a playoff game. It's just, it's something special. It's something special that I hope anyone can, can witness. And then, uh, Fenway, Fenway was awesome. Like we got to see Fenway. Um, on the anniversary year of it. Well, it was like the 100th anniversary of Fenway. 
and we uh, we got to see a Yankees uh, Red Sox series, and we did a tour of Fenway, and it was like walking around a movie set. It was just, it was unbelievable. It was it was the coolest thing that there was uh, was to see. Um, and that was we went to Yankee Stadium on the last year of the old Yankee Stadium, and I mean it was a dump, but it was cool to get to see and walk through Monument Park and everything else. But Fenway's a movie set, and I mean, the seats are like way too small and things like that. And, you know, you sit behind a pole and obstructive views, but all the baseball nerds, their reason why they say never tear down a place like that. And yeah, you got to experience it. There was a, an 80 year old man that was the usher or the, the, the person who scans tickets when you walk into Fenway. This is the first time I ever went and I was there by myself and I had a ticket behind first base about six rows back and I accidentally on StubHub bought the ticket for the Sunday game and I was at the Saturday game and I showed it to him and he, he brought me in like he was my grandpa and, and <laughs> whispered to me and said, son, you bought tomorrow's ticket. And I said, oh, no. And he could tell I was sincere. And he said, come here, son. And he kind of walked me to the gate and let me through. Really? And he said, good luck. <laughs> and, and nobody came for that seat. And then I got to keep the ticket because he didn't scan it or anything. And so I got to go to two games. There you go. Yeah, it's crazy. So that works out. So yeah, it's, it's a cool story. place. It's definitely, definitely a cool place. Last question. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? Put it on black, right? Got to. So, no, man. Oh, man. Uh, what were we going to say? Like invest or something cheesy like that? <laughs> no, man. You know what You know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to... I'm gonna, um, I'm going to do something fun with it, right? Like, I mean, like my wife wants a new fence. So after that fence <laughs> is built in the backyard, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna call up Mr. Bradley D. And I'm going to say, hey, look, man, I got a little dude who's only uh, four years old right now. And one day in life, he needs to experience the world and, and, and see things. I need you to make a list of where he needs to see and, and when he needs to see it. And we're going to send him on that trip. So, so if it means that a trip, whenever he's uh, 24 to see this place and, and, and 30 to see this place and 35 to see that place, like that, that's what we're going to do with it. Um, you, you don't meet smart, you don't meet dumb people that travel a lot. And I, I'd rather him uh, get some travel in his life. Thank you for saying that. And that is really wise because it's so important to get certain experiences at certain ages. You can't always plan it out that way. But if you could, that would be an excellent way to go. Thank you for doing this, Parfait. I really appreciate it, man. This was a blast. Yeah, it was fun, man. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. How can people find you on the webs? Oh, man, if you want to just see pictures of a four-year-old acting a bit obnoxious uh, at It's Parfait on, uh, on Instagram, and, um, you know, we'll post some stuff from time to time of just either running or playing sports or, you know, doing something cool that, uh, that looks a lot cooler than what it probably is. <laughs> there you have it. Let's go play some poker. Let's go win some money. There we go. All right, buddy. Friends, thank you for tuning in. It means the world to me. If you know someone who would enjoy this episode with Parfait, please copy the link and send it to a friend. And if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, be on the lookout for a small token of my appreciation in the mail. To follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 